0: Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Dandelion Energy, committed to helping reduce the use of fossil fuels by providing geothermal home heating and cooling solutions to homeowners across the Northeast.
1: More information at dandelionenergy.com. And the Office of the Massachusetts
2: State Treasurer. The unclaimed property division is holding unclaimed funds from utility bills, uncashed paychecks, savings accounts, and more. To see if you have unclaimed money, you can visit
3: findmassmoney.gov.
4: Ahead on Boston Public Radio, we're starting today's show with open lines, getting thoughts and reactions of yours on the rising cost of everything. At what point do we let our skimpy wallets influence our values with gas prices at all time highs? For example, President Biden is looking to Saudi Arabia, a country he once called a pariah. And are oil companies gouging us? We'll talk about it all right ahead.
2: Software company Frisia made its way into thousands of hospitals and clinics around the country, documenting medical information during checkups. But a new Washington Post report finds the same company is selling that data on hundreds of millions of Americans to big pharma. Our medical ethicist, Art Kaplan, will weigh in on that, plus the sad tale of Happy the Elephant in the Bronx Zoo, where the court came down on his personhood. All that and more ahead, Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GPH. listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Good morning, Jim.
4: Hey there, Marjorie. How are you?
2: Excellent. Thank you.
4: So inflation is wreaking havoc on Americans. Tell us something we didn't know, Jim. The cost of gas, food, just about everything is going up big time. When the Fed – with the Fed expected – well, they are going to raise interest rates today. It's only a question of how much. Uh, It's pretty clear it's going to get worse in the short run before hopefully – Inflation gets better in the long run. But this is already top of mind for the vast majority of Americans. Marjorie and I were looking at a Pew Research poll, 70 percent, huge margin, number one in the survey, a number one issue above reproductive rights, gun control. Actually, the only thing that was even close was the cost of health care, which came in second. So we want to check in with you again. We've done it before as the forecast only appears to be more grave, again, at least for the short term. How are you handling these rising costs? Who do you blame? Do you have any creative suggestions for a fix that the big boys and girls in Washington have not embraced? Give us a call or a text at 877-301-8970, 877-301-8970. You can tweet us at BOS Public Radio. Is that all you have to
2: say, Jim?
4: Uh, well, for now, I figured you know this is sort of a Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan experience, so I sort of laid oh, it out. Okay, and then I, oh, I should have said, excuse me. So, Marjorie, what do you think? What well, do you think about this?
2: I mean, obviously, it's a huge problem. I mean, everybody goes to the gas station; they're paying a fortune to put their gas in their car. They're paying a fortune for food. Um, they people are very, very worried. It's going to get worse. And you know, there's, there's, you had Larry Summers on your show last I night. I did. He was, he one was great, only, by the way. Yeah, tell people be, be, before you tell people what he said last night. I mean, he was one of the only economists that was predicting back when we were talking about all these big pandemic bills that this was going to result in inflation. Well, you're not going to
4: like half of this. I mean, he he wrote a piece in The Washington Post, I think it was in February of 2021, saying uh, while the huge uh, uh, stimulus spending bills out of Congress are ambitious and admirable, uh, that huge amount of additional money in the economy and the spending is going to fuel inflation. The Biden people totally trashed him. And obviously he was totally right. Uh, he doesn't see it ending soon, but it's interesting. We're going to talk to our Kaplan in a little while, bring this up with him. I said, so if you were running the show both at the Fed – and he's not crazy about the Fed, by the way. He thinks they've acted too slowly. Or the federal government. One, he totally agrees with what Biden said yesterday, that the Republicans are standing in the way of doing things. And just one example, a concrete example for those of us who are not economic geniuses, drug prices are a huge part of the problem. Right. Uh, uh, that's something that uh, Joe Biden wants to deal with, that uh, the Congress, for some reason, is uh, avoiding. So he also believes – by the way, I got him in ta- – not got him, he – I was happy to take sides. Remember when uh, Joe Biden tweeted maybe a month ago, Mm -hmm. you worried about inflation? One thing we should do is have wealthy corporations pay their fair share. Jeff Bezos tweeted back trashing him. He's with Biden. He says absolutely raising taxes on wealthy corporations. Would be a Remember, uh, big deal. Remember, they just got
2: a massive, massive tax cut just a couple of years ago. Well, I was talking to you about this morning, um, Heather Cox Richardson. I read her all the time yeah. on Substack, Great. and I also read something on Substack called Hoax Lines, which is there to debunk these media, yeah. uh, these media hoaxes, like you know everybody on 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 the right blaming uh, Biden for gas prices, and um, she points out two things, well, several things, uh, that <coughs> there's um, U.S. Production of crude oil during Biden's first year was higher than it was in Trump's uh, first year. And even though this has upset a lot of environmentalists, uh, Biden has issued more permits for oil drilling on federal lands that were issued uh, during the uh, Trump administration's first three years. But the most interesting thing when you talk about Republicans, is that Republicans could have done something uh, when, in May, the House passed the Consumer Fuel Price Gouging Prevention Act,
4: uh-huh.
2: uh, and only straight Democrats... Straight party line vote, oh, you Straight were party saying, line yeah, yeah. vote, yep, and uh, the bill is uh, straight party line vote, Democrats for it, Republicans against it, the bill is sitting in the Senate, but that, that um, what appears to be driving U.S. gas prices is not <laughs> Joe Biden's goofing things up, but pressure... Oil company investors are putting on the oil companies not to produce more gas because everybody's getting rich.
4: Yeah, and and by the way, I think if you had that discussion one-on-one with every American, they'd probably say uh, that's really interesting and we got to address the oil companies. But I think before you have that discussion, the average person will say – I can't afford to pay 5 or 6 or True. $7 a gallon for gas. Somebody in power has got to fix it. And the unfortunate thing for Joe Biden, even if a jury said he is 100 percent acquitted, not guilty, let's assume they said that, doesn't matter. He's the guy in charge. He's the president. Fuck stops
2: with him. I get it.
4: He, exactly. Eight, should, seven, he be going
2: to, should he be going to Saudi Arabia?
4: <laughs> I, I don't I, – I, 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 I mean, who were we talking to? Was it yesterday we were talking to somebody? Uh, uh, I can't remember. It was John King saying that candidates are far tougher on lots of issues until they get elected and have to worry about the issue itself. It's troubling, particularly because of the human rights stuff and the killing of Khashoggi. But, uh, you know, I don't know. 877 301 We don't want to get involved, by the way, in the deep in the weeds today in this discussion unless you're dying to, nor do we want to have some esoteric discussion about policy. We want to know how these rising prices everywhere you turn – are affecting whether it's a gas pump, food prices. And by the way, the short term impact I know you all know this of raising the interest rates at the Fed I mean, hopefully in the long run or bring down inflation. The short term impact is uh, uh, bad news for your 401k, more bad news for your 401k, even though today the stock market is up. Don't ask me why. And secondly, you want to buy a house, for example. Uh, mortgage uh, interest rates are going to be higher, at yeah. least in the short term. and that's
2: going to hurt the, the markets for the so, housing and construction, et cetera. Right,
4: people. so more pain in the short <laughs> run for hopefully some relief in the long run. But we want to know how you're coping with all this in the you interim. Know,
2: Rick, Rick in San Francisco does have a question. I have no idea what the answer is. He says with well, oil companies more than doubling their year-over-year profits, whatever happened at the windfall profit tax? I have no idea. Do you have any idea? I have no idea Oh, yeah, idea I'm an either. expert
4: on that. Let's go to Janice Shrewsbury. <laughs> Your first on Boston Public Radio. Thank you much for calling. Hi.
5: Hi. Thanks for having me. Sure. I, I'm just really hoping that this rising in gas prices is the real push that we need To go electric, to go solar, to get hybrid cars, because uh, I don't think people are going to do it unless they're forced to. And certainly for myself, I've been driving less and buying less gas.
2: You know, well, you do think you'd be crazy, now. Sometimes you see, and I don't know why. This is not. This is a gross generalization, but so oftentimes you see a little teeny tiny woman behind this big, huge, massive, one of those Ford Explorers or one of those Chevy Suburbans or something like that. And I think, even if you have five kids, I mean, wow, do you really need such a gas guzzler? But a lot of people have them, Janice. Yeah,
5: that's that's true. I mean, I just, you know, I just think we're never going to make the change unless unless we have to. I and I. I
4: I totally agree with you. Part of the problem, I don't mean to whine, but, uh, uh, and I agree with you, and I, well, at least I hope you're right about this, how this moves us in that direction. I've been trying to find an EV that I fit into that is not $100,000 for a long time. It's not so easy. Well, Jim, I mean,
2: let's face it, you're unusual.
4: I meant terms of size. Okay, fine. That's a good point. I withdraw that comment. Janice, thank you for calling. That's right. It was a selfish, stupid. It was almost no. as bad as me well, saying actually, I couldn't find a parking space at Flower to buy a birthday cake for myself. So actually, let's watching basketball
2: it. nonstop. Maybe you're not that unusual. Well, I don't think they are I mean, most Everybody people. out there is six foot eleven. You know, we're talking about not Steph your Curry. boy Steph
4: Curry. Six I know, two.
2: six two, and, and people consider him a midget in the NBA. You know, it's uh, that's so maybe. You're you know, not by that the way, unusual. in all
4: seriousness, you and I both make a very decent salary. I should say. We do. When you, I, it, took, it cost me the other day to fill up my gas tank almost $90. I, I mean, I can yeah. afford, I don't like it. I can afford the it $90. It not cost
2: me that much.
4: Well, because you have a hybrid kind I of do. thing. I'm about to buy an EV when I find one to fit in. But, uh, <laughs> put, oh, did I say that already? But, don't but, they
2: have the big boy EV, Jim? Yeah, a Tesla the for $150,000. Oh,
4: I don't really? think that's I'm little, doing that. That's a little expensive. Okay, so the point I'm trying to make is, uh, which is obvious, so why are you making it, is that's a huge amount of... It money. is a huge amount of it's money. It's a huge, and you consider the fact that last year, what was the price of gas, roughly two fifty or something? Mm-hmm. So know. the average person, whenever they fill up their tank, particularly if they need to drive for work, is spending an extra $40, $45 per fill-up. Margaret in North Kingstown, Rhode Island. Hi. Hi.
5: Can, can you hear me?
4: We can indeed.
5: Uh, okay, great. Um, first time, long time. Thank you a lot. Uh, I'm calling because... I am on a fixed income. Yep. Uh, I am driving a lot less. I can't fill up my tank at any, you know, at one time. Yeah. And groceries are
6: through the roof. Through the roof.
5: So I'm eating, yeah, eating differently. And the big worry I have, though, is that the upcoming heating season, and I haven't heard any discussions about that, if fuel... Oil, raise, uh, increases in price the same way gasoline has. There are going to be a lot of very cold people in New England. Well, can others, I, Margaret? Can,
4: I, can you guys in the control room check? Uh, I heard on the radio yesterday. I forgot the numbers. The projected increase in fuel cost, gas and oil for the winter or astronomical. Margaret, I don't know what the rules are for Ryland, but I'm sure they have a low income or a fixed income in your case, fuel assistance program. I mean, there are limited amounts of money and I'm sure you know about it, but I think the first thing you should do is check and see what programs are available for people on fixed incomes on the fuel assistance front. And I would argue, get in there first yeah. because the money always uh, disappears. We wish you luck, Margaret. And Thank you for being honest yeah, about that your is predicament.
2: A, that is a big, huge problem. Uh, and for someone on a fixed income, they're not going to be able to go out and get a heat pump. But it's worth noting that, um, you, you know, it, Biden has used the Defense Production Act to increase those kinds of things like heat pumps. And Bill McKibben is with us all the time, talks yeah. about the fact that none of us would be subject to these wild fluctuations um, if we all had heat pumps, which um, – uh, again, they're initially, I don't know how much they cost. They're not cheap to yeah, put but the, in.
4: Even if we do it, and I, I mean, McKibben has totally convinced me, I knew nothing about heat pumps before. Mm-hmm. That's not going to help us next week. It's not going to help next us next month. But, you know, the Margaret call, which was really important, she touched every base. Yep. She can't afford to fill her gas tank completely. She's on a fixed income. She's worried about staying warm this summer, this winter, She coming winter. She has changed her eating habits. Uh, I mean, it's really painful. I mean, it's, it's, really... very,
2: it's, 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 very, it's very painful. And it makes you wonder how people made it in the 70s when we were up to like, you know, 17% mortgage rates and stuff like that. You know,
4: and by the way, uh, this is not intended to be a relentless uh, Republican bashing only thing. But again, from the discussion with Summers, Larry Summers last night, former Secretary of the Treasury, and what Biden had to say, it is just pick this one example, drug prices. They could deal with this tomorrow if they're willing to take on the pharmaceutical companies, period. And they're not. And you know what's very scary
2: is it's it's looking more and more like the Republicans could have a sweep – in, uh, in 2022, and then you wonder what's going to happen. Will we still try to move forward on climate change? A lot of Republicans are climate change deniers. Will we still move forward know. on policies that can help people? I, I don't know what their policies are that, that can help people, except, you know, bashing gay people and transgender people and women that want to get abortions. Jake from Framingham, Hey, Jake, you before calling.
4: you speak to me, to say Perry from Whitensville says, my solution to the infillation problem is a text. Stay home, uh, stay close to home, and simplify, eat out less. I mean, that's another... Uh, angle, I'm sorry, Jake. You're on. Welcome.
7: No worries. Super cool. Hey, long time listener since I was a little kid. Whoa. Um, but but really, kind of upset at the way that you guys are talking. One, Maury, um, you know, you're talking about why do you have to have such a big vehicle? We, I have three kids, and when you have to drive to Connecticut from Framingham, in a, and you have to stay for three days, you need a big vehicle to have. Uh, the suitcases to carry all yeah. these kids and the swim toys and all this stuff. So that's ridiculous. What well, no, saying- hold on. Hold Jake, <laughs> hold
2: on, Jake. Hold on, Jake. I got three kids, too, and I have a lot of driving and a lot of stuff to put in the car. You get a hybrid. You get a SUV hybrid. Uh, what that's what you do. Ha- what? There's not one hybrid that can
7: haul what I need to haul with a dog, with three kids, my wife pillows
2: okay blankets.
7: but jake, I have seven jake can i, can I get
4: involved hybrid. in this little back and <laughs> forth here the answer jake is there are a lot of people who aren't in your situation so let's accept for argument's sake that you do need a larger vehicle than somebody who doesn't have three kids and all this crap to hold. the answer is i guess you get a smaller car jim, or do yeah. something i should have done ages ago because my kids are going to kill jim. me is get an ev i should have done it
7: jim yes Yes, that would be great if they can afford it, if they can do the transition right now. And also the detriment, the detrimental effect to the environment in terms of what it costs to make the batteries that and all this stuff doesn't get talked about at all. I wish that electric would be the solution. That would be fantastic. Jake, with all
4: due respect, Jake, you're wrong. We have discussed the battery myth with Bill McGibbon, who respectfully probably knows more about environmental issues than anybody on the planet. And it ain't real. There's not no issue, but it is not the issue that anti EV people have been marketing it to be. But continue. I'm sorry.
7: Move the gym. Let's move the gym on the cost of living and what's happening. And you're talking about getting a birthday cake, at flowers. I know. I regret so that. I I don't regret emo, getting well, it, but I should have never. That is, get... that's an guys, excellent you point. You're talking over Jake. me, and that's not I'm sorry. You're right. <laughs> well, Go ahead, up. Jake.
4: Sorry. Come
7: Go on. ahead. It's Two people against one. It's I just there. said, Jim apologies.
4: Goes, go ahead, Jake. Don't have a fit. Thank just you. talk. I,
7: no, I appreciate, no, I appreciate it. Thank you. You know, flour, if anybody's from Boston, great. It's amazing. My wife will drive 20 minutes to go get a breakfast sandwich
6: from there. Me too. Because
7: we're blessed to be able to do that. Yep. But, Jim, that's the most expensive place you could probably get a birthday cake from. And you're talking about the problems of economics and things like that.
4: Come on. Jake, let me. Now say? I will talk over you. Jake, let me just say uh, if you've been listening to the show since I made the mistake of mentioning that That's the right. day after my birthday, I've been eviscerated by every single caller or texter. And so get to the back of the line. I did it guilty as charged. By the way, the cake was one of the best cakes I ever had in my life. Jake, excellent call. Thank you. Call again. 877-301-8970.
2: But you know what another big myth about hybrids is? What's that? that you're gonna, it's going to cost you thousands to replace the battery. The, big, the well, expensive I,
4: battery, the two-battery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes.
2: Okay. I had one hybrid for 12 years and another hybrid for 12 years. I never had to replace the battery, and I had them both for 12 years. So I don't know. I mean, maybe some people have... Uh, unlucky with their batteries, but I certainly wasn't. By the way, that. we
4: bought that first, we bought the exact same car, different colors. Yeah. First hybrid, the same day. I had the same experience as you. I had it for 11 years. How Never many people, had to change the big How many battery. people
2: could you fit in that hybrid?
4: How many could I fit in that? Seven. Uh, well, I could fit three people and 14 clowns. So <laughs> it's, they, because whatever. We got to take a break, Marjorie.
2: Okay, uh, we are talking about inflation and how you're dealing with it, how you're coping with it, the high cost of food, the high cost of gas, um, who you blame, and uh, what are we going to do about this. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH.
4: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie and We're talking about the impact of inflation on everything. Obviously, today is the day the Fed raises the interest rates. Short term, going to raise prices for a lot of things like mortgages, not going to be very good to your 401k if you have one. In the long run, hopefully it will tame inflation. The reason I'm laughing, by the way, is I'm reading the text. And this is one of the reasons I love the show. Our topic is inflation. Half the texts are telling me what Car I could fit into that's an EV that I can afford. The other half are excoriating me for talking about going to Flower to buy my own birthday cake and (laughs) complaining that I couldn't get a parking space. (laughs) That's. That's my Uh, kind of thinking, I'll tell you. You
2: couldn't get a parking space within 20 feet of the store, wasn't that? That's exactly. By the
4: way, and Rebecca's doing a really important service, our coworker. This is a PSA. If you do get a Toyota hybrid, which is what Marjorie and I both had, Highlanders, spray it with Ray spray so the Boston rats don't eat your engine. That's another thing (laughs) you should be worrying about. By the way, that really happened to her. Kevin and Randolph, you are next on Boston Public Radio. Thank you for the call. Hi.
8: Hi guys. Hey. Uh, if, if you'll indulge me, I'd like to touch on two topics. One is the, the whole vehicle thing, but sure. first of all, I'd like to remind you that like a month ago, you were having this same conversation, Jim, and I called in
4: what and I told
8: you about my new technique of shopping every other week and saving massive amounts of money because I'm not wasting money on uh, impulse purchases. And it's been, it's working out fantastically. I am saving so much money and buying so much less stuff just by the awareness of what I'm doing on an every you. other week basis.
4: I remember you. It, I remember, yeah. Yes, me yeah, too. It's,
8: it's a fantastic technique because you don't wind up buying stuff that you're not going to use for the next three months, and it saves you a lot of money. Good. But I just want to give you an update on sure. that. It, it's working out as well as I thought it would. But as far as the vehicles thing, the three top-selling personal vehicles in the U.S. in 2021 were all massive, full-size pickup, pickup trucks.
4: Pickup trucks, yeah, yeah.
8: We've been here so many times since 1973, and people bemoan the, the gas guzzlers that they buy, and then it happens again, and it happens again, and it happens again. It will happen again. It doesn't matter, because people—you know—people will forget. And uh, the Ford F-150—it's a beast of a pickup truck. It sold more vehicles than any, uh, more than a Toyota Camry or a Toyota Corolla. We're
9: just but didn't to do it just it wait, wait, Kevin? Yeah, didn't it just become electric.
4: electric, or not become? They manufacture yeah, electric, for, they, and it sold out like in a minute and a half, which is sort of counterintuitive yeah, not, to me. It's
8: not the electric vehicle that's. Oh, I know in that.
4: I, uh, I know that. Oh, yeah. three,
8: I mean, when the country, when three massive gas-guzzling pickup trucks are the three most popular personal vehicles in the country, we're screwed. It's just because this this will pass gas will get down to $3 a gallon or something again and then we've heard the same story about SUVs over and over again and they just become more popular with every passing year and i don't know
4: well yeah, if i may bike, interrupt you like, kevin you're you're mostly right in terms of long term return to bigger cars but you're wrong if you're suggesting that the public in the short term, doesn't respond by when it is car buying time. They do buy smaller and smaller. Not everybody, obviously. Jake, you heard a minute ago. Uh, but the populace as a whole does buy smaller. Kevin, thanks for the update. We really appreciate it. It was a good piece of advice. Speaking of Jake from, I think it was at Framingham, Suze from Framingham says, BS to Jake on the need for an SUV. I grew up in a family of six. We drove cross-country with luggage and a big tent in a station. Wagon, and of course there was Mitt Romney with his dog Seamus on the roof as they drove to Canada. Is that where it was?
2: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, you know, before before seatbelts, Jim, which was when did seatbelts come in I don't mandatory, know. like the 80s or 90s? Yeah. you know, you, you're putting 10 people, 12 people in a in a country squire and driving all over the place. People are bouncing around the car, which was not very safe, obviously. Listen to this. Uh, somebody just texted. They filled their heating oil tank in late April for twelve hundred dollars.
4: Wow, I don't know an know.
2: oil tank. I haven't
4: had an oil tank in a long time. I have gas. You know what? Someone just texted me, a, a, a friend who has a small business that has a number of employees. Yeah. She just said to me, her employees are, I don't know if this is a value, but this is what she says they're doing are not only uh, not filling their gas tank because they can't afford the cost. They're not filling their gas tank. Cause one of them convinced all of the other coworkers that you will not use as much gas. If the weight of a full gas tank is, you know what I mean, is not in your, car. I have no idea if that's true or not. Obviously, I guess it is to a degree, but look at the calculations people have to make. To survive,
2: well, people are also taking stuff out of their trunk, taking s- stuff in the car, out of the car. Oh, you said you that the other day. Yeah, better yeah, mileage, yeah, yeah, yeah. and if your tires are uh, filled, inflated to the right amount, uh, too, apparently. You've been um, inflating
4: yours to the right amount, I'm sure, pretty regularly. Uh, Have you? I know.
2: I, 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 no, you know how I
4: to haven't. inflate them? I
2: do know how you to do? inflate them. Well, I, they, I just inflate them till they feel really hard.
4: Okay,
5: fine. <laughs> That's what I do.
2: Sarah and Sudbury, <laughs>
4: thank you for your patience. Welcome to the show. Hello.
5: Hello, this is a great topic that you have today, and there's Thanks. so many things that, uh, even as it's been going on, that I think the, um, fellow who was talking about shopping every other week, is a great idea. Kevin, yeah. Um, the, um, yep, yeah, I'm also, um, I'm a low wage, I have been a low wage earner, and, um, so the food prices and everything are definitely affecting me and what I'm doing, mm-hmm. how I'm shopping, and I filled my oil tank, cost me over a thousand dollars, I had to, and it's, uh, worrisome, and, but I also think that, this is going to be the uh, catalyst that um, will force people to start sharing more. I have, I have, actually have an F one fifty. It's a nineteen ninety, but it's in oh. good shape. And um, thirty two years but, old. Know, when I, yeah. Oh my god! Um, okay. And uh, it, but you know, I, I when I turn it on and it, <laughs> you know, I wish it was electric. Um, not only, but for the environment, I wish it was yeah. electric. Um, and. One thing that has occurred to me many times is that um, you know if if um, people were sharing, like if I shared this vehicle with my, some of my neighbors, so when we had to go to Home Depot or whatever or whatever, mm-hmm. you, you know that you could just use it temporarily. And I think that eventually we will we will as a as a, uh, a people we, we will have to start doing that. And people will probably have to start sharing housing because I think that you know oil even even if there is a lot um and it seemed like it was an endless supply at one point in the in history it's not an endless supply we will eventually run out people are going to have to make changes Well hopefully we, we don't will. get
4: to the run out stage hopefully we make the transition pre-runout but Sarah you probably know much better than I we've talked about it on the show in the past there are whole treatises on a sharing economy uh for a lot of reasons for economic reasons for communal reasons for a lot of kinds of things. So you know, I think that's an important message, and thanks for sharing it. We appreciate it.
2: Whole treatises on Americans with their love affairs, with their cars. Yeah. I mean, you know, especially men. Well, women, too, I suppose. Do we have time for one more call? Quick Peter one, yeah. from Bedford.
10: Hi, Peter. What's Hi, Peter. Up? Hi, the first-time caller. Thank you.
2: Thank
9: you. I hope that at some point somebody looks at the profit pages of ExxonMobil and people like that to see – Who's making money after this whole thing? It seems to me that not too many months ago, we were saying we had an extreme, the United States had more oil than I knew what to do with. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's gone someplace. But again, my point is, what 's the profit and who 's the profit to
2: well, it, you know something peter it 's a great point. We started with this. It is massive, and that um, oil produ- production in the United States is being held back not at least according to the oil companies themselves, not because of government regulations but because investor pressure because the, if they ho- hold back the production, the profits are huge and um, ExxonMobil Chevron total energies th- these places have made massive. Uh, profits. This, this um, EOG Resources told its shareholders 2021 was a record-setting year and they're uh, afloat in cash. So I I think you know Peter's got a good point about the gouging stuff. But again... Peter,
4: thank you for the call. We uh, appreciate it.
2: The House passed a Consumer Fuel Price Gouging Prevention Act in May, uh, only with Democrats voting for it, Republicans voting against it, that would have done something about that. And the bill is sitting in the Senate and it's not going to get through um, um, because nothing... Gets through. Through.
4: You know, by the way, before we end this, Myra texted and said, the problem is the new electric Ford pickup is 100 grand. And I looked it up. The high end is 100 grand. But, Myra, unless I'm wrong from a quick search, the low end EV Ford pickup, they say, starts at 39, which I assume is pretty bare bones, but obviously a lot more affordable than 100 well, grand.
2: There's some Hyundai um, electric ones. There's Chevy electric ones. I mean, there's a whole bunch of electric ones, right? Is there a Toyota electric one? There must be.
4: Oh, yeah. I mean, almost everybody's got an electric vehicle. I mean, and by the way, there are a lot of small electric vehicles that are really affordable. But in the spirit of selfishness, which apparently is where I reside, uh, I would have to drive with my feet out the window to be able to. Or your head. Or my head. I did that with my Volvo. Remember it was going to kill me with the (laughs) gases coming out of the the panel there? We got to go. Sorry. Okay.
2: All right, so much for healthcare privacy. Wait till you hear this. Patient portals. You know where you do those online check-ins? Well, they're harvesting your medical data, which may explain why you're getting a lot of ads pitched to you and you can't figure out where they're coming from. Our medical ethicist Art Kaplan joins us to discuss that and much more. And, of course, Monkeypox. You're listening to Boston Health Radio 89.7 GBH.
4: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Like, we don't have enough bad news. The World (laughs) Health Organization is convening an emergency meeting next week to determine the global threat of the monkeypox, which is gaining a foothold in outbreaks across Europe and has been confirmed in four people here in Massachusetts. Joining us now to discuss this and happy the elephant is medical ethicist Art Kaplan, Art is the doctor's William F and Virginia Connolly mini professor and founding head of the division of medical ethics at NYU School of Medicine in New York City. Good morning, Art. Hey, good morning.
2: Okay, Art Kaplan you know, for weeks I have been wondering why I get texts and messages about things I have no use for medically, and I, can, I, I don't understand why I'm getting them. Well, I'm... I'll stop writing
5: you then. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, I think I now have the answer. Tell us about this uh, Freesia, this company that's apparently selling our medical data.
11: That's right. So there is a company that handles or offers to handle your billing. So if you come in, they basically say, we'll streamline that for you. But what they're really interested in is getting your personal information and selling it to other companies, not so much, uh, you know, do, do you want to buy a picnic bench, but the kinds of ads that you get that say, oh, we noticed you might have asthma, or it looks like you have dry eye or whatever it is. And that's really where they make their money. It is in the tiny print when you sign up for this service that they are going to sell your data, but you'd have to have extraordinary vision to find it because it's in the tiniest of tiny, tiny print. And I think it's just nonsense. They should have to really need some requirements. I mean, you see it for Facebook and other social media where they say, do you consent to the secondary use of your data, but it's buried. Yeah. It's legit. Well, can I go
4: one step further? First of all, the headline of the story should be, seeing your doctor may be injurious to your health. Why should this... By the way, I am sort of a lawyer, or sort of used to be. I sign anything they put in front of me when I go to the doctor because I want to see the doctor or the nurse or the physician's assistant. Why is it ethical to even present that option? If a patient walks in and says, hey, doctor or nurse, I'd like to have my data sold can you tell me how to do it? Okay. But short of that, I'm serious. Why should this even be allowed?
11: The only real real way to have an honest consent is to have the type, the same size as everything else, and then do it before you go to the doctor. Who's going to sit there at the doctor's office and say, well, let me go through this. And I have questions for you about the secondary seal to which the clerk who's checking you in has no idea. I'm absolutely sure. So you're right, Jim, it ought to be something that, you could at least consider before you get there, if you want to sign up for that, with a big, clear, informed consent. But we continue to let ourselves get ripped off on the Internet. And this is another example. But you know what also is really scary,
2: especially during the pandemic, how many times you, you've done this digital check-in, right? You're going to go oh, yeah. to yeah. the dentist. You're going to go to the dermatologist. You, and you're supposed to fill out these things digitally check in at home yeah they're they're taking advantage of that too according to this washington post piece that's right
11: but i mean you could do it if you had legitimate consent let me give you a whole other area where this sort of bait and switch goes on it's all the genetic ancestry testing they're selling your data too but it's in the tiny type if you want to find out if you're bulgarian we will be happy to give you some feedback on that but in the tiny tiny type we're going to sell all your data to pharma companies. That's where they make the money. The Bulgarian is just a you know, it's a lure to get you in. You know, and I don't even this think, it's that
4: by the way. This is I really... remember
2: when we used to worry about uh driving on the mass pike and have people know, you know, your your where you were traveling if you got the uh you know the, the, the fast lane thing. Fast pass thing. Yeah. Oh I yeah mean, I mean, I mean
8: that was so,
11: that. so yeah, yeah. yesterday. I mean forget <laughs> it.
8: <laughs>
4: In any so, case,
11: okay, go ahead. So I'm it's sorry. Just a, it's a world we're going to have to return to, but again, it's out of control in terms of permission, consent, disclosure. It, there just isn't enough regulation here.
4: Now, on we've been talking about guns a lot since this tentative deal, at least the framework of deal in the United yeah. States Senate. And by the way, after speaking to Julia Kaim yesterday, I was moving in the direction of thinking this is a good idea until I heard Mitch McConnell endorse it, at which point I realized <laughs> it's obviously a horrible idea. But on a much more positive front, because we've been criticized, Art, Marjorie and I, the last few days, being too negative, great news out of Ohio, instead of a teacher having to go through 700 hours of training – to carry a weapon in a classroom he or she only has to go through 24 hours of training and then they can carry a gun in the classroom I assume that's great news isn't it
9: well
11: it is if you're lagging in your grades I would think that that might be a motivation knowing that the teacher is (laughs) armed I mean really (laughs) I'd be a little careful about wising off in class but more seriously (laughs) It's ridiculous. Are you kidding me? What could go wrong with arming teachers who are well acquainted with weapons and are certainly not stressed out in any way and are absolutely going to know what to do if an intruder shows up? Boy, it didn't make PTA meetings very lively when you're admitting a group of folks you don't know. I think the whole thing is crazy, arming teachers. And most teachers don't want it. Most teachers don't want it. There are countries that do it. I know Israel, for the terrorism reasons, has a lot of armed teachers, but I think they go through, you know, months of training and only certain teachers can get it and you got to do the background checks. This thing is just like, you know, arm uh, a 65-year-old about to retire a teacher who may have bad vision, uh, give him a weapon. If that's the response to gun safety in schools, it's not going to go.
4: Well, you know, if you, when you read the story, it's like, you know, there were, people chanting after every mass murder at places in Ohio, do something. And this is a perfect example of we did something, so shut up, even though it's not. You know, the other thing, it's almost not worth even spending time, so just say this and we'll move on. You know, a a normal person who trains, let's say a public safety type or a security officer who trains to be able to use a weapon, that's his or her job is to protect the public safety. The most difficult job, I would argue, in this country is a teacher who's yep. a shrink, a teacher, uh, you know, a, a monitor, a mentor, a social worker. And on top of that, we're going to arm them so they can protect the ch- – I mean, it is By the it way, so I don't know enraging. if you saw
11: the statistic, either of you, but there are 100,000 less people – going after teacher certificates this year. We made the job intolerable. Yeah, yeah and, and we should also
2: point out that this DeWine, the governor there, has already signed a bill saying you don't need a license to carry a concealed handgun. I yeah, mean, it's I turning mean, into the Wild West.
11: Very know. wild, very yeah.
4: wild. Okay, can we move to a the ultimate ethical conundrum? Can you bring, I, I, so we discussed this briefly with Simon Montgomery, uh, the, in, the ultimate naturalist hero of ours. Uh, tell us about it. The, the elephant in the, is it the South Bronx Zoo? Is that where it's this elephant Zoo. is? Bronx Zoo. Bronx yeah. Zoo. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about it.
11: Ah, uh, now this will command listener attention um, because many of us have pets. Many of us might even own a farm where there are animals. And there is a, uh, there are groups that have been fighting to get certain animals rights, basically by creating or adding them to the category of person mm-hmm. meaning mm-hmm. they have standing and they can't be kept if you will confined in a zoo and this was the case of happy the elephant who's been there for decades um, is a big draw for the bronx zoo as elephants are in many um, zoos but we know if you watch even minimally some of the you know nature shows on tv elephants are pretty smart
4: yeah, they yeah.
11: navigate around thousands of miles. They circle for funerals when one of them dies. They help one another. They're smart creatures. And so this group has basically said, "We're." Fi- I love this. You'll like this too, Jim, as a lawyer. Wow. They filed a writ of habeas corpus that this is an illegal detention of Happy the Elephant in the Bronx Zoo. And she, uh, she ought to be sent, if you will, to an elephant sanctuary, uh, of which there are a few and not confined in smaller spaces uh, there. The court that considered this the highest court in New York, by the way, the top appellate court said, we're not going to make her a person. It's clear that uh, she's an intelligent creature. But if we did this, then it would be hard to maintain practices like keeping a pet. It would be hard to have farm animals it would cause chaos in society to add happy to the ranks of us. I, I must say, by the way, looking at human behavior, I'm not exactly sure why Happy the Elephant wants to join us uh, in the same category, but okay. Um, so it's a big animal rights, tough ethics issue. And the court took the argument that the consequences would be too awful. It didn't really decide in the way I think they should have, which is what's good for happy the elephant because nobody you know we don't really look at these court cases and say, if we decide this way that oh heck is going to break loose two other li- little quick reminders one corporations or persons anybody remember citizens yes, united Yes
2: we do we do They don't even
11: you can't even find them happy the elephant we know where she is and We know what she's up to. And she's alone. She's alone. That's the part that's so painful.
2: They are very social elephants, and her mate or companion has been dead for quite some time. I put a huge amount of blame in the Bronx Zoo here, which I'm disappointed in because it's a really great zoo, but not in this case, obviously, Mm -hmm. that they can't uh, either send her to a sanctuary and get some more elephants in there or that they can't get more elephants because that's the big part of it too. Solitary confinement.
11: yeah, the other thing I was going to mention is the circuses have given up the elephants, oh, yeah, given up the animals, because they think it's too cruel, and the training and the tricks is too cruel, and transporting them is too cruel. So we have a little bit of a precedent. I'll say this. Happy may have lost, but you got two judges out of the seven to vote in her favor. There That's were two judges? Did. I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. Really? really? You know, is and this... Then,
4: I'm sorry, go ahead. Do yeah, yeah, second point? Yeah. And,
11: and the other uh, thing I think is the future of zoos with respect to large mammals, or remember the fights about the dolphins? in
5: mm-hmm. The
11: dolphin tank, they're smart too, and they see World Family said, Mm-mm, no more, we got to let them roam free, that sort of thing. This isn't over. This is going to be a really interesting area because I think human practices, vis-a-vis captive animals, zoos, shows, circuses, Whatever else goes on, I'm going to predict that somewhere Happy or her kin are going to win one of these things.
4: Is this is this Steve Weissman, the local lawyer who's been doing this animal rights thing yes. forever? To his credit, by the way, whether you disagree with him or not, this yeah. is a guy who's relentless. And, you know, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but since you said it, and, and uh, one of the most exciting things when I lived in New York City a century ago, and Art, I know you obviously hang out in New York City a lot, too. I don't know if you ever did it. Whenever the circus came to the garden, to Madison Square Garden, yeah. all the animals would be let off at Forty Second Street yeah. on the river, on the Hudson, yes. and they would march, including yes. the elephants, through the streets of Manhattan yes. and down to Madison Square Garden. And the sad part is the elephants were part of it. And I, to the credit of activists, as you mentioned, elephants are no longer, I think, in any zoo, in any yeah. circuses, at least the the major ones. It was one of the most beautiful surreal things, but in, in retrospect, I don't send me angry texts. I know it was cruel, and I shouldn't have celebrated it, but it was really yeah yeah it was an something incredible see, thing
11: for sure as a kid, I remember it very distinctly I, I mean I was living in Boston then, but I remember going down for the circus just for that parade. I think my dad said, you got to see this yeah, it's incredible uh, so it was it was but nonetheless uh happy may be unhappy today, but I I think something's swirling with respect to intelligent animals. Uh, I I don't think this is the last we're going to hear about animal rights that way. Maybe, you know, by the way,
4: I'm always looking for compromise. One possibility, I don't want to give Weissman advice. Obviously, he's a great lawyer. How about trading the space? There are a couple of humans that probably belong in solitary confinement. In any case, we're talking They're to our Kaplan. Too, Medical too. That's exactly right. Medical ethicist.
2: Yes. So uh, I was really pleased to learn that if you get the monkeypox vaccine, you wind up with a gnarly, pus laden lump that blossoms <laughs> and that's oozing and nasty and feels awful. Um, so I, I hope I don't need to get one of these. But what is going on with monkeypox and its spread and how concerned should you yeah, be? Yeah, this is.
11: This is a really interesting area. Obviously, we're all coming off COVID and it's kind of tired of worrying about pandemics and new infectious diseases. So it's like we need this, like, not very much. Monkeypox has been in Africa. It's around, but it sort of broke out. And there looked like the smallpox vaccine, uh, which nobody gets anymore, except me because I'm so old. I had it a long time ago. does seem to have some efficacy against this a thing. But WHO is going to hold a meeting to decide, well, who, if anybody or all of us should like get vaccinated either with a monkeypox vaccine, which is close to the smallpox or just the smallpox vaccine. And I have a scar still on my arm from the really? smallpox vaccine. Yep. That was exactly as described. It caused, you know, disfigure. I mean, it's not huge, but you can tell who had it just by looking at Their arm, you'll see a a leftover scar from the thing. And it did wipe out smallpox. But a couple of more interesting points. The spread seems to be confined more or less right now to gay men and bisexual people. I'm not sure why that is, but it does seem to be true. Most of the people who have monkeypox are men. And so just like way back in the early days of HIV AIDS, there seems to be a reluctance because you don't want to stigmatize groups to say, well, maybe we should just vaccinate gay men, or maybe we should have educational campaigns, because you get this by sex, or touch it. You don't get it by airborne sneezing and coughing. This is a sexually transmitted or contact disease. Uh, So do we need focused efforts on particular communities? And there are a lot of people who say, I don't want to do that, because it's going to bring more stigma in there. On the other hand, Vaccinating the entire world against this thing, it's, you know, you're not going to get it unless you, uh, as I say, have close contact with someone who has it. Um, probably not a good idea to vaccinate the world, too big an effort, too, too expensive, too crazy to try and do it. But we don't really want to talk about sort of where it is, how it's spreading, partly, as I say, for fear of stigmatizing a population.
4: Well, you know, the WHO, on that note, went out of its way uh, at the early stages of this a few weeks ago to say that there is no uh, subgroup of humans that is more at risk than any other subgroup. Are they really, because of their concern about the stigma issue? But I have a couple of questions that I probably should know the answer to. I read that the the good news is, uh, assuming we need it, there are 100 million doses Uh, Of smallpox vaccine stockpiled, or whatever the verb is. Why is it that some vaccines don't have a shelf life, I assume, like that? And like the mRNA things, as we learned, had a shelf life of only X number of days in the early stages. Why do some vaccines. I I
11: mean, without getting boring about it, it's all, it's just chemistry. That makes the okay, difference. Fine. The okay. Smallpox don't so, require the heavy freezing. And OK, all so
4: here's my greater concern. I'm reading verbatim from something I read last night that the World Health Organization is calling a an emergency meeting to decide if monkeypox should be declared a public health emergency of international concern. It's the term of art, which is their number one highest alert. I mean, that's a little frightening is should I not be or should I be?
11: No, he should be. I mean, we got to watch it. There's a tendency to say, boy, it's so difficult to catch it uh, that I'm not going to worry about it. Or it's only impacting a community that I, many officials around the world, because they uh, do not accept uh, homosexuality or not, they're indifferent to, let's say, or hostile or might arrest or might even kill. So those are WHO issues politically that they're trying to win their way through. I do think we should pay attention. I do think we need more campaigns about how to avoid it in terms of contact and sexual, uh, safe sex, and that sort of thing. Um, It might be a good idea in Pride Month, where there are a lot of parties and things going on, uh, where people are meeting to remind people to be careful. Uh, Is this international concern level stuff yet? I don't think so.
4: We're talking to Art Kaplan, medical ethicist.
11: So Art Kaplan,
2: what is going on um, with this uh, in Congress regarding the FDA and some changes about prescription drug importation?
11: Yeah. So again, once I explain this to you, you're going to be shaking your heads, but you know, the FDA funds its review of drugs by charging the companies that make or innovating the drugs fees. So the corporate side pays for the FDA to do the work. We can spend a couple of years debating what conflict of interest that might be creating. But yeah. anyway, so that legislation is up for renewal. It's basically taxing the industry to regulate by the FDA. And I think it's, for me, it's a little too cozy, but that's the system we've got. And the so alternative would obviously that, be
4: tax dollars from everybody, right? Rather correct. than user fees from the affected correct. companies. Okay, go ahead.
11: Correct. But tacked onto this thing is our old friend, how about importing drugs from Canada, Britain, where they might be cheaper, or in the case of some drugs, more easily available, since I do see us, it's not a drug, but we all know we're flying in formula milk from uh, other places, and uh, things go short here, insulin is very expensive here, it's much cheaper elsewhere, So there's going to be a little bit of a fight in the background. Should we legalize importation? And I've long felt yes. I mean, it is silly to say that Canada doesn't have sufficient safety standards to let us pull their drugs in. And in the formula case, We already conceded that fact by flying it in from other places.
4: You know, by the way, I had Larry Summers, former secretary of the Treasury, on TV with me last night, obviously talking about inflation. And I said to him, if you were the czar of the Fed and the federal government, give me a list of things you do. Uh, Well, I shouldn't say obviously. One of the things near the top of the list was deal with prescription drug prices. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if people are concerned about inflation. And another stupid question for you, other than the pharmaceutical companies – is there one per uh, I would assume that every Republican, other than they're being beholden to the pharmaceutical companies and every Democrat has constituencies, which about ninety nine percent of would like to get cheaper drugs from Canada. Is that not the case? So that you the are only-
11: correct. It's really divided, not down the usual uh, political divide. There are Republicans for it, Democrats against it. I don't even understand half the politics. I do think lobbying is playing a big role in why this doesn't happen. But, you know, we're sending our drugs to the Ukraine. I mean, you think about it, right. it it makes no sense, no sense to say that you can't import from another uh, nation with, we know, high standards. I'm sure Switzerland is laughing itself silly over the idea that their drugs aren't good enough for us to be able to import.
4: <laughs> and we yeah. should be clear one more time, and maybe it wasn't, but it, to be 100% clear – they're cheaper. there. the same drugs that are yeah, X dollars yeah. here are half X, a quarter yes. X, whatever it is. So it would not only increase the supply, not that that's a huge issue, I guess, right. Right now, but the, lower prices. I'm yeah, sorry.
11: And the rationale for that is somebody has got to pay for the cost of research. So we wouldn't want it to be the Canadians. We wouldn't want it to be the Swiss, not Singapore. How about we all pay more?
2: <laughs> yeah. And, and you are constantly hear, you know, about, uh, Young people who have diseases that require drugs or older people that are on fixed incomes and they're older, so they're getting yeah. more sick, can't afford the drugs, right? They yep. can't afford.
4: Well, also yeah. the absurdity of this, how many men listening to the show right now ordered Viagra or generic Viagra mm-hmm. from Canadian pharmacies? Everybody raise your hand. I mean, that's yep. the reality. I mean, it, it is. It's just, look at the look on Marjorie's face. What, I, didn't, I
2: didn't know they were doing that. But I keep wondering why I'm getting all these Viagra ads since I am a female, but it must be maybe they misunderstood my name on my Frisia
11: <laughs> Well, they check know you have a lot
4: of male friends. Doctor. I mean, that's the only thing I can figure That's uh, the only thing I can.
11: You're, an in, you're just an influencer, Marjorie. <laughs> I guess. I guess it's good to know I'm
2: influencing in everybody's sex life. That's good to know.
4: Hey, Art, it's good to speak to you. Thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you.
2: Okay, Art Captain, thank you very much. Our Kaplan is a Dr. William Meff from Virginia Commonwealth University, Professor and Founding Head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU School of Medicine in New York City. Thanks so much again, Art. Right. Coming up, the Seaport is getting a new park. The Boston Globe business writer Shirley Young will, will join us to discuss how it might not be the best use of space in the neighborhood, a continuing saga of not the best use of space in the neighborhood involving the Seaport. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH.
4: Ahead on Boston Public Radio, we're joined by Globe Business columnist Shirley Leung on the early demise of the gig worker ballot question and a new openness to safe consumption sites here in Massachusetts as opioid-related overdose death numbers surge in our state. Then journalist and hiker Miles Howard created a 25-mile Boston trail map to talk with him about hiking in Boston before opening lines to hear your favorite local scenic routes in the city.
2: Mitra Kalita, a former CNN executive, on what's changed and what hasn't when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. Then our tech guru, Andy Anatko, on sentient artificial intelligence and other tech headlines. Then we'll open the lines for your thoughts on the devastating news about one of three Belrica market baskets closing. What is it about the supermarket staple that we love so much? All that to come, Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Jim Browdy, I am Marjorie Egan. You're listening to our number two of Boston public radio, 89, seven GBH. Hello again, Jim.
0: Hello
4: again, Marjorie. And joining us now is Boston globe business columnist, Shirley Leung. Hey, Shirley. Hi, Jim. Hi, Marjorie. Hey. Hello, Shirley. Great to talk to you as
2: always. So the uh, Massachusetts SJC has thrown out this uh, ballot measure involving gig workers, Uber, Lyft, et cetera. Wh- what does this mean?
0: Uh, this is a huge surprise. You know, um, There were the two sides, you know, are spending millions of dollars, (laughs) Uh, and um, this is a a huge victory uh, to the labor labor unions and um, who uh, wanted to who did not want to see this on the ballot. Uh, This is a a very confused. If you've seen, started to see some of the ads. Almost intentionally confusing. Right. Uh, so this is a ballot proposal uh, supported by Uber and Lyft. And they basically want to keep employees, their, drivers as not as as independent contractors and not as employees. And um, the other side of it is that um, the unions would like uh, these drivers to have more rights, to have more benefits. Um, And uh, this, um, I I think, this was actually pretty shocking that the SGC threw it out, Um, and um, and so now, uh, as my colleague Matt Stout wrote, what's really interesting is that now you're going to see a lot more attention put on the fair share fair share amendment, which is the uh, taxing millionaires' ballot. these were two kind of big uh, ballot initiatives and now uh, kind of splitting, right, splitting efforts, uh, the unions. And at the, at the so now they can focus on on defeating uh, the millionaire's tax.
4: Well, you know, there, it, what's really interesting, it, well, two things I find interesting. One, that uh, the SJC's decision in the Constitution, which allows for ballot questions were one of, I think, 26 states that let people make and repeal laws and change the Constitution on the ballot, direct democracy, they call it. They said uh, that the, it violated the relatedness doctrine, that there were two concepts that were not really related. First question is Maura Healy, as attorney general, had to approve the question as constitutionally proper to get it on the ballot. First question is, why did she not see what they saw? But secondly, for those who were on the side of Lyft and uh, the companies, Lyft and Uber, the SJC says they tried to essentially bury in this uh, ballot question a provision That would have relieved uh, those companies from any liability should a driver get in an accident, kill somebody, whatever, or be sexually assaulted. I mean this is grotesque. It's not just a violation of the Constitution as the SJC said, but it's also the most selfish, small-minded, anti-consumer – Uh, uh, Thing, Forget what you feel about the drivers. So I hope people read Matt's piece and see what the uh, proponents here were trying to do. Again, even if you were on the side of the uh, ride shares. You know, the other thing, uh, you make a really good point, Ed, Matt, that there's more energy now for those who support the millionaire's tax. They don't like it being called that, the fair share amendment. But you know also that needs a lot of attention? There's likely to be another ballot question we read the other day uh, shortly after – the, uh, the veto of the governor was overridden on driver's licenses for undocumented mm-hmm. workers. The group said they were going to try to repeal that uh, law on the ballot, which they have a right to do if they get 40,000 signatures, which is no mean feat. The reason I even bring it up is Jeff Deal, uh, the leading candidate on the Republican side, who won't come on our show until after the primary, by the way, which is, I oh, think, really? the, the first time me. we have ever had a candidate for statewide office, ever. Refused to come on when they're in a contested election. Wow. He said he'll come on after the uh, after the primary. But the significance of that is Healy and Chang Diaz are in favor of the licenses in the law. He's mm-hmm. against it. This could end up and and the public is split evenly on this, like forty seven mm-hmm. to forty six. This could end up being a a sideshow that moves to center stage as a cultural yeah. issue in this gubernatorial election, don't you think? I mean, this is the kind of thing that could more level the playing field for Jeff Deal if he really gloms onto this.
0: Yeah, it could it could absolutely and um
2: I mean I have am so shocked that he won't go on your
0: show. I'm
4: We've had by the way, he's been on it many times through Remember the years.
2: He, he was right. so gracious he he brought me a bottle of bourbon, Jim, after Trump won because he knew that I, remember, I was, he was uh, not in favor of the president's election. He, of course, is running the campaign here in
4: Co-chair of the campaign, yeah. But in any I case, mean, people should keep an eye on whether or not the yes. proponents of the repeal get the signatures because it is going to be a – maybe it's not the biggest issue in the state, but it will be really high profile in the governor's race, and I assume Deal would push it big time.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Shirley Young, um, I, I, you know, I think at first blush people think – of safe consumption sites, they think consumption sites of drugs, they think that's not crazy. You're going to sit there in a medical facility, you're going to watch somebody inject drugs uh, that could possibly kill them. But, of course, people are going to inject the drugs anyway. Safe consumption sites uh, save massive numbers of life. They have one in New York City, as a story your colleague Felice Fryer wrote about, um, where they saved 314 people from overdosing, not to mention that they discarded half a million syringes uh, that you might see um, in public parks or even in you know, that Melnia uh, schoolyard down there, that elementary school there in the playground. So yeah. g- give us your take on consumption sites. Right. So,
0: so I was pretty agnostic about safe consumption sites. Now, you know, Somerville has already approved one and they're in the process of opening one. And, but last year when I spent time on mass and cast um, and you see people openly, um, you know, doing drugs. Um, and, um, and so it's almost like we already have a place in the Boston where people are openly using drugs and the, no one's going to stop them. So it seems to me that we, we, we should take it one step further. if, it it's safer if it's people are um, if there are places they can go where they can safely inject and maybe um, you know be part of a program uh, to get off drugs you know and and if you think about mass and cast is almost it all, uh, functions as a safe injection center right but without um, and without then there the are safe. Some yeah it, it is and and if you think of that they're, they're um, if you talk to the people on mass and cast, they say that we watch out for each other, you know, if there's an overdose and, or, or we, we watch out. And, and so I was like, we're we're, we're practically there (laughs) with mass and cast. So why not do something, um, you know, that why why not get behind a pilot and this is what um you know in, 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 in that's some a, a bill on Beacon Hill a 10 year pilot um, have something more organized have something in a building with supervision I, you know the over the, the opioid crisis is not over. It's gotten worse. There are more deaths now. Yeah. So why not? Why not do something that's sanctions? Uh, that's uh, there's infrastructure around it. I mean, we we, we have to try everything now to, to try to solve the opioid
4: crisis. Well, again, a couple things about this you mentioned, you know, and you go to a safe consumption site. You may get be part of a program that can help you. You may not be part of a program that can help you, but you won't die. And if right. nothing happens other the only argument ever against this by opponents is it's going to cause people who weren't going to do drugs to all of a sudden do serious drugs and there is zero I don't evidence think so. zero evidence and to the credit of Marty Walsh I think he did this on our show but it, but at least he talked about on our show. Marty Walsh was against these. It is rare that a politician takes a strong position, then looks at the evidence. He traveled mm-hmm. to Canada, I think, to Vancouver or, or somewhere, yeah. or wherever that was. Yeah, right, Toronto, right. And he came back and he said, I was wrong. Uh, yeah. uh, these are important and we should do these. And the evidence, I think, is overwhelming that it saves lives. Yeah. It may not get people off drugs. Sometimes it helps, but it will save lives. That's a proven. To me,
2: to me this is just like the clean needles debate from yeah, like 25 exactly years right. ago. You're yes. we could right. Yeah. Oh, we couldn't give clean needles out to addicts who might be right. getting AIDS because that's going to encourage drug use. Oh, we can't legalize marijuana because that's going to encourage. We have an hysterical reaction among politicians anyway and among law enforcement yeah. to drug use in America. And um, we're never going to not be doing drugs. And why not make it as safe as you can if you're mm-hmm. going to do them? And me. as
0: Felice points out, um, the, the political climate is cha- changing, um, yeah. you know, Maura Healy, um, has, uh, you know, is a leading candidate for governor. Uh, she, uh, supported looking at, uh, safe injection sites. Um, we have Rachel Rollins, who's now the U S attorney. Uh, I think she would be open to looking at them, but though the previous, um, U S attorney was against them. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, I think it's war. I mean again like i feel like there's a sense that it's not like anyone's proposing to to open a safe injection center on every corner right yeah, <laughs> we're probably talking about a handful of sites in a pilot in a very careful in a very kind of structured um pilot
2: Yeah, Healthcare for the Homeless, right down close to Melnia Cass. That was one of the places that was always talked about. And that's what they specialize in, right? Physicians and and medical people that help people who are homeless. So Shirley Young from the Boston Globe, tell us about this Seaport Park. It sounds a little puny to me.
4: (laughs) That's open-mindedness.
2: It's all all about your
0: expectations, right? And so I... Decided to spend some time down in the Seaport District, Seaport Square. Uh, we've been writing about for years um, this uh, new public space called Harbor Way, and it's it's a linear park. And I started out the story talking about how WS, who's the developer, uh, who's behind this public space on private property um how they hired at at one time i thought oh didn't they say this we like the high line in manhattan which is incredible by the way oh yeah you're elevated
2: you walk or you can see the city below you go through coffee shops and little shops and it's so much fun beautiful plantings Right. So it's a 1.5
0: million, uh, 1.5 mile long linear park in Manhattan opened up in 2009. It's an old elevated rail line that has been repurposed as a new park. And it's a huge, very popular in New York among tourists and the locals. And so W.S. hired the same architect, you know, the the Mm -hmm. architect who did the highlight. They brought them to do the harbor way. And so I was thinking, are we? are we going to get the High Line here now? Uh, Because they hired the same architect. And I actually uh, interviewed James Corner. It's like, are you bringing the High Line here? It's like, I'm not bringing the High Line here. (laughs) Um, I am helping to design it. Um, These are very, two different projects. They're apples and oranges. Uh, You know, I repurposed a rail line here. This is a brand new uh, neighborhood and I'm I'm building a park. So I decided to walk, the, the 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 harborway which is about a third of a mile long um it's much smaller but but you're it's not complete but the first part of it has opened um in 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 the seaport um and it's and it's 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 nice it's it's a it's a promenade it's a wooden promenade with trees and there's nice seating um other parts are under construction but it is not going to be the, Transform it. It's not, yeah. I, in my opinion, it's not going to transform the seaport. It will be a nice addition to those who live and work there, but it's not going to be a, a destination for uh, visitors across the country or even across town. Um, if you happen to be in the seaport, you you will enjoy the space. Now, you know, WS says to me. You know, don't pass judgment um, on this park. It, it's still three to five years from being built, and there's a, a critical element that they've um, they're proposing to uh, th- that they're pro- proposing to redesign. They just put in a, a change with the city, um, and you'll create a 1.4 a acre park uh, on Seaport Boulevard. I think that will feel you know very different from that. That will be a nice respite for the city. Again, I still don't think. It's going to be transformative. It's not going to feel like the Greenway. It's not going to feel like Martin's Park, which is this one-acre, very lush one-acre park with a playground by the Children's Museum.
2: Is it too late for the, for the Seaport? Is it just too late to, to really rescue it? I think it? it's too late, but yeah. it's but but I had a a, a really good interview
0: with um, Reverend White Hammond, who is the yes. chief of environment and open space, and and she says. Um, When she looks at the seaport, she's, she craves, you know, uh, you know, more place. She's like, why, why, why aren't there, why isn't there a baseball field? Why isn't there a soccer field? Why aren't there more splash pads? You know, uh, why is it, why does it feel like a promenade with seats? You know, and basically it, and, and she's like, there's a lost opportunity here. You know, we could have built an incredible uh, connected park system that is worthy of um, Olmstead, you know, that could pay homage to the Emerald Necklace. And um, I, I do think it's too late to do that kind of park in the seaport, but it's not too late in other parts of the city, like Four Point area yeah. or East Boston. And and she's told me that this idea of public space On private property, she says going forward when when we look at projects, we should demand that developers, um, you know, after they, you know, they work with the city to develop public space on private property, they give that public space back to the city. To manage and to give control, and that that is a way to, for that space to feel more democratic. And and she gives examples like Post Office Square yeah. or A Street Park. Um, you know, one of the things that she said there, there's just so few few privately owned public spaces that feel truly public. And and the one example she gave was the Christian Science Plaza. You know. Which Which I thought with the the pool and the pool, right? because I think too often the space in the seaport, it feels like you you have to buy something, you know, to be there or belong there. (laughs) Like you can't just be there. And also, parts of the seaport that the 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 big spaces there, there are a lot of green lawns there, but like you can't bring your dog on the lawn. You you can't do, there are a lot of rules. <laughs> um, and so it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel democratic enough. And so I think, I think it's very smart for her and the city of Boston um, with under the Wu administration to be like, we don't want to do a lot of these deals anymore. Sure. We, we want the city to control more of the public space on private property. So the the point that White
4: around. Hammond made, you made a minute ago, is, is it, does the, the city have the legal power as part of the permitting process to require that the public it, well, space on private land be turned?
0: Yeah, I I don't know if it's a legal. They can mandate they have, they
4: could, it. They can they can be part of the as you say exactly okay.
0: negotiating. Because I asked her, I said if you're unhappy, for example, with what WS is doing on uh, the seaport now. Yeah. Why don't you just demand now that that yeah. space be turned over and she's like we can't It's that that project is too far along we can do that in the very early stages and and she's saying we are we i'm actively doing i'm doing that now on other projects elsewhere where we are demanding more mm-hmm. of the developer more control of public space on private property
4: By the way the one last thing on this the, one of the reasons I'm I, you know bemoan the fact that it's not like the High Line that we're all praising is we had your colleague David Abel on the other day, and if he's right, the whole seaport's going to be underwater in about four <laughs> minutes. So it'd be good if the walkway was God. elevated, don't you think?
2: Yeah. So, right, oh exactly. God. The High Line's, what, well, 25 feet off the ground? Or something. By the way, you <laughs> know why Marjorie likes
4: the High Line, which she has not met? And this why? is totally true. In addition to what you two mentioned, the shops and the this yeah. and the whatever, you can look in people's apartments. You can. Because uh, they're really a bunch of apartment it's buildings. It's wonderful. As, yeah. and Marjorie loves, you do, you love yeah. that kind of and thing. And it's right
2: next to that nazi redone whitney museum which has yeah. all the beautiful porches out it's in the fabulous back and stuff. it's brilliantly
4: conceived and, and, it's and just great
2: brooklyn they had that whole waterfront park in brooklyn, yeah. now brooklyn bridge park Water, yes. i've been
0: there too it's, it's great spectacular I mean, what, if i could add one more thing on on a note about uh follow up to david abel's comment um you know and that's another reason why reverend white hammond wants to control more of the parks because she believes that parks play a critical role. In um, protecting, uh, you know, the parts of the city from um, climate change, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's rising sea levels or uh, heat to kind of break up heat islands um, in the city. She thinks parks are uh, park space are critical to to fighting um, climate change and building resiliency
4: we're talking to shirley young
2: so shirley young uh uh, greg rosolsky wrote this piece for npr talking about disabusing us of the notion that huge progress has been made uh since the civil rights movement when it comes to closing the racial wealth gap but it basically says that uh, things have stalled uh since the 1950s and gotten worse since the 80s so 80s what's what's the deal yeah, this is um
0: you know there's there are a lot of academics studying the racial wealth gap now and this particular story was built on um uh, the work of a young Princeton economist and she uh looking at uh, what has happened to the racial wealth gap since, wealth gap since uh since slaves were freed and um and she found out actually The the gap was um, narrowest right after emancipation. Um, But it seems like largely because um, uh, slaves were a big part of. Uh, white households, I guess, net worth. And so once they freed the yeah. slaves, um, they lost money, right? It, it wasn't so much that the that black, black people and black households uh, get, made more money. It's just that white households lost more money, right? And, um, and she said it was fairly um, you know, flat and uh, for a long, long time. And, and one would think that um the civil rights laws uh, anti discrimination laws that uh, the gap would have narrowed since uh, the sixties and but in in fact it 's just grown since the eighties and and basically because of um, systemic racism and structural barriers that have remained and prevented black households from um, from uh, you know earning money, whether it's becoming homeowners because the financial institutions there's so much discrimination and that remains and so the and i 've heard other academics reach the same conclusion is that we need a, um, a wealth redistrib- wealth redistribution plan or reparations in order to really close the wealth gap in a timely fashion. Um, even and and as well as fisk, fixing all these structural barriers and systemic racism that that um, remains in the financial system.
4: You know, one last thing on this is uh, I don't know you I know you had Lee Pelton on when I was off last week, Marjorie. But the Boston Foundation, the Federal Reserve, Eastern Bank, a whole bunch of organizations are doing a relook at the 2015 Federal Reserve yep. study that everybody listening to the show has memorized. Average wealth of a white family, 247000 Average fam- uh, wealth of a black family, $8. What they missed, unfortunately, the Latino thing left out. A Dominican families, $0. Puerto Rican families, 32000 The analysis of Asian families didn't have enough of a sample to be included. Not only are they redoing the study, which is apparently going to take three years, but much more importantly, they're de- digging much more deeply so that they can uh, uh, quantify the causes of all this. While we know a lot of this, the fixing is dependent upon figuring out what needs fixing. And while some of the things are obvious about housing and that sort of thing, they're apparently doing something that will be of great value for those that are serious about finally closing this uh, this horrible gap that doesn't just exist here, even though it's worse here than in most places, but all throughout the uh, the country.
0: My yeah. prediction is reparations will become a, a you know, I think I once I, I, reparations will become a much bigger um, uh, point of discussion. Um, you know, I think before it was saying like that will never happen. But I think increasingly economists are saying, um, I don't think we can close uh, the racial wealth gap. I don't think we can get rid of inequities without it because it's there's too big of a gap. Uh, and and it would take generations uh, if if we if we just only worked on uh, systemic uh,
2: you know breaking down systemic barriers.
4: Uh, Shirley, it's good to speak with you. Thanks so much for your time.
2: Thank you, Shirley. you well. Thanks for having me. Bye. See you later. We've been speaking with the Boston Globe Business columnist, Shirley Young. We speak with her every week. Coming up, speaking of parks, we're going to talk, uh, talk to Miles Howard, who's mapped out a 25-mile urban hiking trail connecting more than a dozen neighborhoods in Boston. In other words, you can hike right out your front door if you live near Boston. That's next on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH.
4: Boston Public Radio, Marjorie and Jim Browning. Miles Howard is a Boston-based journalist and author of the Mind the Moss newsletter about hiking. You don't have to go to the wilds of whatever. He has created a 25-mile urban hiking trail that connects greenways across more than a dozen neighborhoods in Boston. After we speak to Miles for a couple minutes, we're going to open the phone and text lines to get your favorite places to hike or just to enjoy the outdoors in greater Boston. Again, not in some faraway place. Miles, welcome to the show.
6: Thanks
4: for having me. It's great to be with you, too.
2: Our pleasure. Yeah, great to talk to you, Miles. I'm so inspired <laughs> listening, reading what you've written about uh, what's right here close to home. So you've mapped out this 25-mile urban hiking trail. Um, so we don't have to go to Yosemite. We don't have to go to Western Mass. We can just go right here if we're lucky enough to live in Boston or near Boston.
6: Pretty much. I mean, all you have to do to hike the Walking City Trail is to uh, either step out your back door or jump on the nearest bus or train heading to Boston. Uh, The trail starts at the Neponset River right on the Milton-Boston line, and it goes to Bunker Hill and Charleston. So uh, you've got several points of access, all of which are public transit accessible, and that really was one of the... Key ideas behind creating this trail was, you know, breaking down barriers of access to hiking. Because to go to Yosemite or even Western Mass, you often need access to a vehicle, and many of us don't have that. But hiking is growing in popularity, so I wanted to try to do something about that in Boston.
4: You know, this is one of these things when I'm reading the material about you and your work miles, as I often do with creative guests who are on the show. I say, how is it possible this didn't exist? before this guy or woman did what they did. A lot of other cities have what you're trying to create here already, correct?
6: Well, yes and no. I mean, there there certainly are other cities that have linear park systems where you can walk from one green space to the other. And actually, Boston has one of the oldest in the nation with the... uh, Necklace, necklace, sure. Yeah, uh, and, you know, what you are seeing in other cities, including places that are much more car-centric than Boston, is a resurging effort to design more multi-use greenways so that people can actually go for an urban hike or bike ride from one neighborhood to the other. I was in uh, St. Louis recently, and they are uh, really expanding the greenways they have there now. But, uh, you know, when it comes to urban hiking uh, on a trail like this, really taking the backcountry trail concept and applying it to parks and streetwalks and cities – The only thing that really compares to this, the only real reference that I had in the U.S. was this uh, thing in San Francisco called the Crosstown Trail, which is a uh, fairly recently designed 17-mile hiking route across the city's parks and urban woodlands, which was uh, basically put together by trail designers who looked at maps and thought, huh, let's take these park paths, link them with these street walks through residential areas, and take people on a journey through a side of San Francisco they've never seen before. So... Uh, you know that was kind of the inspiration for the Walking City Trail uh, as a model.
4: And by the way, the Walking City Trails you described in your response to the first question from Marjorie, for those of us who are not exactly ready to do a twenty-five mile hike <laughs> this weekend, there are a ton of entry points and exit points. Yes.
6: Yeah. So the trail and the trail is divided into four sections, uh, each of which is about five to seven miles long. And I will add that I have not walked the whole thing myself in a single day yet. So glad I, I to hear. It to be- I wanted this to be something people could split up over a Mm -hmm. weekend, do in uh, little pieces over a longer period of time, or knock off in one grueling day. But, yeah, there are four different, uh, you know, access points to the trail, four trailheads. And even within each trail section, um, in the directions that people can get on the trail website, I note various places where you can easily jump on a bus or subway if you decide, you know what, I'm good, I want to call it a day.
4: What is that website, by the way, Miles?
6: Yeah, so it's bostontrails.org. And on that site, you will find uh, detailed maps, written directions, and more information about uh, the green spaces and urban wilds that the trail goes through.
2: So, Miles Howard, why do you like hiking around Boston so much?
6: <laughs> I like it because there's an improbability to the entire thing. I mean, Boston, uh, compared to a lot of U.S. cities, has a really impressive wealth of green spaces here that range from you know manicured, sculpted parks to seriously shaggy pieces of naturalistic forests that have been cultivated and preserved here. And, you know, I've, I've been to a lot of the U S through my work as a, freelance writer. And, you know, what you often find in cities is that there are nice parks here and there, but then there are enormous concrete deserts. And in Boston, for the most part, it's fairly easy to take a short walk from one park to another. So, you know, I love the diversity of what a green space looks like in Boston. I love the ease of getting from one to the next. And uh, I love how easily you can just stitch them together into, you know, more of a pilgrimage like this. I mean, the Walking City Trail is one example of what an urban hike through Boston could look like. But anybody who knows how to use uh, mapping software and uh, you know a website uh, designer could you know create another trail like this too.
4: Is Greater Boston a hiking? Is the populace of Greater Boston a hiking friendly uh, a community? Or I don't know if you only have anecdotal information. What's the answer to that, Miles?
6: Well, it's probably just going to be anecdotal on my end, but I, I've seen this from two perspectives. Uh, before becoming a freelance writer, I worked for the Appalachian Mountain Club in their hut system as a crew member. And we I met so many people from the greater Boston area, you know, in the, in the falls and summers I worked up there. And, uh, you know, being closer to home now, I mean, I have certainly seen – Uh, you know, droves of people leaving Boston on weekends, filling up trailheads faster in Western Mass, New Hampshire, Vermont, you name it. But, you know, the other thing that gave me some indication that there was a local office here for like the Walking City Trail was um, as I started to map the whole thing, I put some teasers for the trail uh, on Twitter and the response that I got from people locally, the likes, the retweets was beyond anything I imagined. I thought maybe I thought maybe 10 or 15 people might enjoy it, you know, and we, we got over a th- and, you know, this got into the thousands at one point. And so, you know, that was really an affirmation that, you know, this concept of urban hiking, you know, might have a greater audience than one might assume, especially right here in Boston. And it really was a spur on my side to, you know, finish the trail design and do it to the best of my ability.
4: We're talking to Miles uh, Howard. You know, uh uh Miles, are we is Boston cold or am I dreaming this up? Are we called America's walking city or is that something I imagined in the middle of the night one night?
6: We we I I had that same thought because it is a nickname that you do see bestowed on Boston quite often and I still haven't figured out where it comes from ultimately. I mean, I've I've done some looking around. I and and there's really no you know, clear source to who coined the name. And I suspect that it has to do something with Boston's history of, you know, being a pretty decent place to be a pedestrian with our sidewalk coverage, uh, you know, being um, one of the earliest cities to model, you know, the Olmsteadian version of parks with projects like the Emerald Necklace. I mean, you know, I I, I love going to American cities of all types and, you know, trying to be a pedestrian there. And it's, it's, it's tougher in some places. I lived in LA for a little while. and I kind of loved being a, you know, a weird, you know, walking person out there. But in Boston, you really feel like you're among your people, you know, roaming the sidewalks and parks.
4: By the way, I want to tell you, we just got a text from a guest of ours and a friend, Trenny Kuznerik. I hope I'm, we're allowed to read this. She didn't say not. She said, uh, Trenny is uh, from NBC sports, Boston. She says, is Boston a hiking city? Well, the whole, she's engaged now, by the way. I should say. Well, the whole reason I joined the dating app Hinge is because Meredith, as in her buddy Meredith Goldstein, said there were hundreds of guys with hiking pictures. So <laughs> apparently, it's not just you, Miles Howard. It goes uh, more uh, more broadly. But you know, you do I've find. Of... What's oh, that? Go ahead, go ahead, Miles.
6: I, I've heard of this from other Hinge and Bumble users. I've <laughs> thought of shaving. At certain points, because I don't want to be pigeonholed that easily. But, yeah.
2: but you know, you do talk about just anecdotally. I don't know if they're hiking, but I, I used to live near the Muddy River, and it was a great place to walk yeah. your dog. And it, you know, goes right from the Fenway there, you know, out to Jamaica a Pond and, and, and beyond. And it's crowded, and you're and you're kind of below the street level and there's a lot of shade and there's, you know, concrete on one side and dirt in the, I'm not concrete, asphalt on one side and dirt in the other. Go over, go underneath all those gorgeous bridges. I mean, it's like this little hidden gem that I think lots of people don't know about, but when you go there, it's packed. So I guess lots of people do know about it.
6: Well, that's kind of what I was getting at when I said the improbability of urban hiking is something that I love about it. And in many of the green spaces visited on the Walking City Trail, um, not just the Riverway, but places like Charin Woods or Stony Brook Reservation. Yeah, Stony Brook. Uh, you, there is this immersive quality that just, you know, makes you kind of incredulous that you're still within the boundaries of a major city. And, you know, when I when I mapped this trail, I realized that I needed kind of an underlying theme for the whole thing, because if you just did every park and green space in Boston, that would be a journey of 50 miles. And the theme that I ultimately chose was immersion. You know, the green spaces here that, you know, really take you out of your element. Well, without ever, you know, taking you out of
4: Boston proper. I think it's so, great. BostonTrails.org. So, yeah. Is that right? That's right.
2: And if we go on BostonTrails.org, we'll get instructions about where to go and how to do it.
6: Exactly. Because this isn't a physically blazed route yet, uh, the way that the way to navigate the Walking City Trail is through using the maps and written directions that are available on bostontrails.org. You can download them and print them. You can look at them on your phone. Uh, some of the maps are actually uh, interactive maps with, the, with uh, this app called AllTrails, which is sort of like Google Maps for hiking. I uh, highly recommend using it, but not not necessary. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's your go-to place for navigational resources and other trail advice. Miles,
4: well, Miles it's great to meet you and I'm, great what you did, by the way. Yeah. I really appreciate your time.
2: Yeah, I'm psyched, Miles. Thank you.
4: Thanks for having me. I appreciate sure. the interest. Talk we to you again appreciate soon.
2: appreciate your being with us. Miles Howard is a Boston-based journalist and he's the author of Mind the Moss, the newsletter about hiking. And the website, again, is bostontrails.org. So we're going to open up the phone lines now to get your favorite places to hike and enjoy the outdoors in Boston or right around Boston. Uh, give us a call or text us at 877-301-8970. where's your favorite hiking place, Jim?
4: Well, I, I, I generally like – I hike from my house to Market Basket generally. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of the urban jungle kind of thing, and it's tough. But I mean streets. But you know, i and the I was thinking about. I knew you were going to ask me right away. It's not really a hike. I, walking along the Charles anytime great. is great. It's just one of the most beautiful on the beautiful Cambridge things.
2: side. It's better. Yeah,
4: and it's also got dirt paths and it's great. And also mm-hmm. the most beautiful. I think the most beautiful place in the city. You almost touched on it a minute ago. The Arboretum is just unbelievable. Yep. I don't know if that counts as a hike either. Here are a couple of textures. And by the way, for the next few minutes, we are, as Marjorie said, going to get your thoughts or not your thoughts, you know, share your, the, the beauty of the city, your favorite hiking or outdoor spots in Boston with your fellow listeners. How appropriate, <laughs> this texture says, how appropriate, his name is Miles. I My know, favorite spot that. is Mount Auburn <laughs> Cemetery. Visitors need to be mindful of the rules, no picnics, running or bicycle, then walk, this is a good point by Sophia in Cambridge, then walk two blocks to a um, great walk around a fresh pond. Marion Wareham says the very best place to hike is the Blue Hills Reservation just south of Boston. My kids, younger kids there all the time, comprising parts of Milton, Canton, Quincy, Randolph, and Hyde Park. Let's go to Lincoln, where John is on Boston Public Radio. Welcome to the show, John.
9: Hi, guys. Uh, Good afternoon. So uh, my wife and I have been doing these about 10-mile hikes uh, most Sundays for the last three years, all around Eastern Mass. Mm -hmm. We've done the whole Bay Circuit Trail, but within Boston... What we'd like to do, uh, easy things where you can kind of get back to where you started, either any sort of section of the Charles River yeah. uh, from, you know, one bridge up to another. Yeah. Uh, we've gone all the way from Cambridge to Watertown and down to the Science Museum. But another uh, thing we'd like to do is really walking in the city. And uh, we've adopted this sort of hub and, and uh, rim or spoken rim model where we'll just kind of uh, hike in from the end of one uh, T-line into the city until we get tired, I mean, we have lunch and, and take a break and hike a little bit further. And then we take the T back out to where we started. And then the rim approach is we actually hike from the end of one of the T line uh, to the next. So we've hiked That's from uh, I love that from or Alewife to, uh, to Franklin Park, uh, uh, all the way out to Revere Beach. We haven't completed it yet, but it's just a great way to explore Boston. And then also you come across these great little restaurants you can stop at and have lunch. Which you never would have found otherwise. And of course, they can use the business as well.
4: So, that was a lot f- to do in the city. Fabulous call, John. That was really great. And thanks for sharing that info from your family we appreciate it
2: you know lots of people have probably seen it from the highway driving into boston uh through dorchester on your right hand side you're heading into boston there's that big huge dorchester park now that's got water and it's on a river and it's got it you can you can walk for like an hour if you want to and there are dogs there and people come there uh, with their kids and play frisbee and stuff like that it's a beautiful park um What's your
4: favorite? Did you say you asked me? Did you say what your?
2: Well, I like I said. I used to live near the muddy river and right, that, yeah. um, walk the dog there, and it, it you go there. These it's all it 's very leafy, you know the, the leaf cover is great, so there 's always shade there and you're and you 're going underneath these absolutely gorgeous bridges. I love that. I love the Dorchester park as well I, I, would, I should have gotten the name of it before it came on the air, and i didn 't but it 's fairly new and it 's like as I said, you can see it from the highway and it 's huge. You can go on forever. you know you know what 's got huge parks um, it 's not really hiking. But South Boston has got massive mm-hmm. parks. It's, it's, you can walk all the way from you know Sully's Hamburgers well, all the way Castell-
4: well, yeah, exactly. around Castle Island, and, go
2: out by the gazebo. You can yeah. see all the people out there that are doing the uh, kite sailing, which is really fun to watch them. Uh, kite sail. You can come back and get something to eat at
4: Sully's. Or you can Sully's. just get a cheeseburger and sit down. I mean, that's you can, the you can do that. That's
2: right. And there's a huge playground there, too. Plus, it's got um, you know, some of the uh, oldest buildings, the forts and stuff like that. Plus... The On a certain day, depending on how the wind is, the planes land in Logan. I mean, it's almost like you can see the passengers through the windows. That's really neat too. Listen, before we go to the, the next caller, person.
4: let's look at uh, Zoe. Just send us a note. The L El- coworker, the L El- oh, yeah. Parkway is extremely lush right now. I mainly bike the path from Cambridge to Lexington, but it's a great hiking walking path too. On my way to work yesterday, I biked past. This is great. A snapping turtle. And there are plenty of swans and herns along the alewife brook, too. Well, that's pretty beautiful, is it not? It's, it's very
2: beautiful. Kevin and Brookline, thank you for calling. Hey, Kevin. Hey, folks.
12: Uh, just a couple of things since you talked about Castle Island. Yes. The spectacle island is beautiful to hike on. And then you sort of get more bang for your buck because you get, like, the cute ferry ride out there. That's a great point. And then uh, I, would also, oof, I would also mention that across from Allendale Farms, is sort of a hidden hiking trail, which is kept pristine because there's not a lot of parking. So you've got to be sort of creative to get there. But when you get there, it's like it's a fantastic hike in between sort of Allendale Farm and like the VFW Parkway. And oh. It's really quite something to explore. Oh, yeah, it's, it's hidden. Hold on. I've been hiking all over the place.
2: Where do you park and, when you go well, there? Well, that's
12: the thing. It's like if you
2: you can sort of park...
12: Kind of closer to like, I wouldn't go there now because of the U.S. Open, but close to where like, yeah, to close to where like Lars Anderson and so on and so forth and take that little walk there, and it's beautiful in there. It's very hidden and very surprising. And lastly, even though we're talking about hiking, the gentleman that talked about the Charles River, I would also point out that what we've got in Boston that a lot of places don't have is if you were to kayak, The Charles, and get in a Newton, and go upriver, not downriver. In like five minutes, you feel like you're a thousand miles from the city, and it's breathtaking. Well, that's
4: pretty great. Those are great suggestions, Kevin.
2: I've gone by Allendale Farms a million times, and I never knew there was what what Kevin was just talking about. No, wow. that's why we're asking people Lars to Anderson, either. though, that he does mention, is spectacular. I mean, it's it's just spectacular. Waterfalls, beautiful. You can barbecue there. It's great.
4: You know, by the way, the text from Chris in Engineering, like our colleague Chris in Engineering, is that mm-hmm. who? Oh, my God. Okay. So Chris in Engineering says, isn't the best place to hike in Boston, not the Great Blue Hills? A lot of people saying that. For which... GBH is named. I assume people know that. Great Blue oh, Hills. Great Blue Hills. He says, excellent view of Boston and superb radio reception for Boston, <laughs>
9: Public.
4: Boston Public Radio. That's, That's a good great one. point, That's Chris. That's a good one, Chris. Thanks. 877-301-8970. People take this pretty seriously. You can't, Not just well, it's so Miles nice. Howard. Who- it's
2: so nice to um, be able to get, walk and get out in nature. Gary from Wisconsin. Thank Wisconsin. Hi, Gary. What are you doing out there in Wisconsin?
10: Hi, hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Can. Okay. Um, I I uh moved out here from Randolph about four years ago and I grew up about a couple thousand yards from the M D C trails, the oh. outer edge of the uh yeah. Blue Hills Reservation. And mm-hmm. I used I grew up there. I went all the time down to Ponkapog Lake and and uh I just miss it so much. Is you know there's a few places up here not not you really have to search for them but uh my brother Kevin who called earlier he, he walks his dog in those Wait same in trails. So that's your problems. brother Kevin? Are... <laughs>
2: Kevin's
10: my brother. Yeah, lives, Oh, that's great. Unbelievable.
8: Lives, uh... but, do you have any um, other siblings, I, uh, Gary, you yeah. can call us or is, or do any he... uh, Bi-
10: Bi- 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 oh, Billy works for uh for the town of uh of course he does. He's a videographer for Somerville. And Can he call in it? or not? <laughs> is
4: he busy or is no,
10: he free? Pri- I, I don't know. I don't, but I have a lot. I'm going, to, I'm going there in August. I'm going to visit. Right now I'm down in Fort Myers visiting my son, but I'm flying back tonight. So.
2: Now, hold on, Gary. Did you and Kevin coordinate this or was it just a coincidence no, here no, that he I calls him, and I, then you I call? I listen
10: to your show almost, your you. show almost every day and Thank I just you. happen to
4: hear him. So. That's great.
10: Wow. So well, a family glad to hear from hikers. both of you.
4: Okay, yeah. uh, thank you very much for the call, Gary. It's good to talk to you and tell Kevin hi and all that sort of thing. By the way, if you guys in the control room can check this. Gabby just texted and said, I tried bostontrails.org, which is what Miles told us, and got a warning. And so did I. So can you give Miles a quick call and ask him what's up? Because we don't want to have people get frustrated and not do this kind of thing. Want to go to Medford, Marjorie, where Janet is on the phone. Hello, Absolutely. Janet. Absolutely.
3: Hey, good afternoon, guys. Love the you show. Thanks. Thank you. Um, we love Boston. I'm Bostonian. I actually put my bike on the train last week. But furthermore, we raised our children to clean the cells. And the Fells is wonderful. It's not, you know, clearly Boston, but we do, you can do all trails mm-hmm. and find all the trails there. The parking's great. The swimming's wonderful. And you can um, rent boats. But we've hiked there for, you know, many years and we did graduate. And the big hurrah is. My husband has his own hiking website. So oh is, my goodness! And he, you know, he, he's he's a Cambridgeite, and um, he's got his own, you know, profession. And you can just go in and say, you know, my my hiking page. And so what's okay? What's amazing. the website? It's amazing. What is it? It's in it's his name. I'll give it to you. Um, I'll give it to the office and um so it's in his name yeah. so it's three biblical names and uh, you know you go to his profession 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 site and then it says my hiking page it's awesome it's just awesome you will know, we'll do uh,
4: Janet we're going to put Diligent. you on hold when we're done and you tell this site name yeah, to, to our, our coworkers staff. they'll check it out and then we'll share it with the audience so Janet you know, thank you I don't just, go away we're going to put that, you on hold for a second yep
2: tell you i am on boston org with no problem oh you are so, yeah So, I don't know. Well,
4: there you go. So, you you didn't do
2: bostontrails.com?
4: No, I did bostontrails.org. Some people can get through, some people can't. So, I mean, just be, uh, you know, be relentless and you'll get there kind of thing. Harry, you're in a car. I guess you knew that. And you're on Boston (laughs) Public Radio. I mean, why am I telling him? I mean, he knows he's there. Uh, You're on the show. What's up?
8: Hey, here's a great
7: place. Off of 128 Highland Ave. Yeah. yeah. If you get off that exit and go to West Roxbury, there's a little parking spot right there, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And you can kayak and you can walk. And <gasps> actually forty forty years ago you could you could, you could, you could camp out there. But it wasn't official camping. But that's the Charles River overflow and and it's a beautiful spot. I haven't been out there in twenty thirty years, forty years. But it's beautiful, and Harry, people take advantage of that, yes.
2: Is that the place where you go over a little a bridge, kind of, kind of on your way to Wells Avenue in in, uh, in Newton, and you can see people that rent little boats and stuff right there? That's oh, the yeah, place, right? Yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. you can rent yeah. your own and boat. You don't have to have a boat. Can
7: go, you can go from there all the way to Needham. It's, it's like unbelievable. Yeah. But you can walk in there, too. It's
2: great. Yeah, that's a great one. It's absolutely beautiful. Oh, my goodness. I feel so much better.
7: Well, you
4: know what? I also... You so got into the mood of the callers and the texters. Do you know we went 17 minutes without you mocking me about the fact that I've probably never been on a hike in my whole life, which... Is the kindest you've been to me in the 25 years we've been together here.
2: Well, you know, I occasionally do some kind of things toward you. Jim, I, I, I bought you some sausages just the other day.
12: You
4: did. Let me tell you, I am Marjorie gets me sausage of the month. I know it's not our topic. And the latest installment came yesterday. And you should see me gnawing at this thing in the car on the way home. It is just – it is – Almost as good as a hike in the Blue Hills. Thank you for your calls and your suggestions were really brilliant. Thank you for you know what this them. shows What's getting that getting
2: out in nature really improves your mood. I know mood. that does it not? Well,
4: by the way, it's interesting you say that. Do you notice the sound, the the timber, if that's the right word, of the voices of the callers and yeah. how happy and relaxed and calm and everything they felt? It was great. In any case, thanks for the calls.
2: Okay, coming up. Uh, What does a diversity, equity, and inclusion officer really do? Well, we're going to hear hear from Mitra Kalita, a journalist who's written about the role and how it's changed pretty dramatically since George Floyd's murder. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH.
4: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brady and Marjorie. And I want to put a little flesh on the bones of that promo from a minute ago. We will cover the next day of the January 6th committee hearings tomorrow. It starts at 1. We'll be on the air with our normal show from 11 to 1. And then starting at 1 o'clock, we'll bring you live coverage of the House Select Committee hearings. In April, Lowell's first diversity officer resigned after four months. She said the city wasn't ready for change. Worcester and Falmouth's DEI officers also posted their 2 weeks' notices this past spring. Esmeetra Kalita joins us to talk about growing pains in companies trying to promote racial equity, or at least saying they're trying to promote racial equity, and what diversity staff really need to be successful. She's co-founder and CEO of URL Media, a network of black and brown news and information outlets. It's great to meet you, Marita. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it.
2: Thank you. It's great to be here. So it it sounds to me, from your great piece in Time Magazine and other things I read in, in, in anticipation of coming here, is it um, diversity officer has kind of been a cover your derriere kind of thing, <laughs> more than more than something serious until recently. So uh, fill us in. Um, so cover your derriere is a good way to put it. Um, and the title indeed did
1: exist before the death of George Floyd. Um, one of the diversity officers I talked to actually said to me, "I've been doing this since the days of Rodney King." Right? Oh, Meaning, there is a lot of. Um, kind of believe um, for some people, diversity is like a new thing. And they're jumping on the bandwagon uh, for, I think this title, there's a lot of folks that um, have been doing the work uh, as we say for quite some time officially. And then there's the unofficial capacity. And I think this is companies are addressing and um, municipalities, I think are addressing both of these concerns. One is, as you say, uh, it was kind of a under-resourced um, Cosmetic job. Yeah. Didn't really have a lot of teeth. I think where a lot of the real work in diversity and inclusion has been happening is in what's now called the invisible labor. So, what do I mean by that? I was a longtime executive at CNN. I worked there for five years. I had diversity nowhere in my title. I ran the breaking news team, the programming team, the digital news team, the features. I mean, similar to you know, what, what you all are doing here every day. Diversity was nowhere in my title, and yet the line of staffers of color out my office door after the election of Donald Trump was quite long, right? After a incident of police brutality, you know, there was guaranteed like tears on my couch over how do we cover this? How come they don't get it? Why do we take the police record as the official record, right? These are the sorts of questions that I think um, certain segments of workforces have long been grappling with kind of in secret, right? Yeah. And now that's all coming to the fore. And so you're seeing two trends. One is to give the chief diversity officer or your director of diversity or whatever you call it, there's also been changes within the title to give it more teeth. The second is to resource the people who've been doing the work, but were never given credit for it. And to acknowledge that a big part of companies' diversity efforts actually rest, not just vertically, meaning one department is in charge with it, but horizontally, all of us must care about this work.
4: We're talking to Mitra Khalid. I decided, Mitra, I was only going to butcher your name twice, not three times. So I figured <laughs> the third time that. I'd try to be a little bit more respectful and get it right. You know, you wrote a great piece in Time Magazine, which is a terrific short how-to for people who do want to get it right. And it seems the thing that struck me is the simplest thing to do right away to at least if you're a corporate leader, to show that at least your intention is to be serious about this, is take these DEI officers out of where they generally are, which is a, a piece of the HR department, and have him or her report directly to the CEO, not just of operational value, but it seems to me symbolically, it makes a really important statement to the company, at least about what the executive purports uh, uh, to care about. Is that is that a fair summary of what you're saying?
1: That's absolutely right. And if you think about how um, large organizations and small are directed, I mean, the person, in, I was going to say the guy in charge, but see, that's my bias. <laughs> the, person, the person in charge um, really sets a tone. And so the ability to have this, Um, office newly empowered by going directly to the person in charge um, does two things. One, it hopefully filters out the game of telephone to get stuff done. The second is, you know, when you have a meeting of direct reports around the table, you know, another discovery that's been an ongoing kind of decades long problem for corporate America is that the upper echelons of power are not very diverse. Yeah. Want, you know, you don't want the only black direct report of a CEO to be the chief diversity officer, yeah. but in some cases, that's where they're starting.
4: You know, I want to talk about the upper echelon thing. One of the things that really stay with me, we had David Gergen on the other day, who I'm sure mm-hmm. you know well from your I CNN do. days, just yeah. written a terrific book where he says what a lot of people don't have the courage to say, it's time for the octogenarians in government to make way for mm-hmm. younger people. And you mentioned uh, uh, Serena Williams' husband, who is a co-founder of Reddit. Share with us what in furtherance of the idea of diversity, her husband, who happens to be white a white guy, by the way, what did he decide to do at Reddit?
1: Oh, that's a great question. So Alexis Ohanian is uh, the co-founder of Reddit, probably more well-known now for being Serena Williams' husband. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, So... He made an interesting decision about a year and a half ago, I believe you could check my kind of dates on that. And he said, you know, I'm stepping off the board of Reddit and I would like to be replaced by a person of color or a woman of color. He was very explicit in making room. It's rare because one thing that you're seeing with the chief diversity officer job is that it's additive, right? The guy in charge is still the guy in charge. Yeah. And I think what Ohanian did was actually quite empowering because he said, I recognize I might be a part of the problem. Now look at who he's married to look at kind of the awareness and working on yourself that that takes. Um, I would venture that a lot of CEOs have still not quite done that work where they need to look in the mirror and say, maybe I'm a part of the problem. Right. I think they're still looking at it from a, I'm trying to fix this and adding um, a seat at the table as opposed to subtracting themselves.
4: We're talking to Mitra Kalita, who's the co-founder and CEO of URL Media, and she used to work at CNN, which we're going to talk about in a minute.
2: You know, one of the things that so many people have said since Barack Obama left the office, because he was the first black president, so he couldn't be all about being black because that was going to make all the white people nervous. But I wonder when somebody like Dean Paquet, I I think that's how you pronounce his last name. Dean Paquet, yep. Yes, he was a longtime editor of the New York Times, um, a black guy. Um, Did he have that issue too, that he couldn't be all about, you know, he he couldn't be too black because this would upset people or did he change things or how do you assess his career there? Oh, wow. That's a great question. I like Dean Paquet
1: personally quite a bit. I think he was in – Um, not an impossible situation, but the position that a lot of leaders of color find themselves in when one person's disgrace becomes your turn. So of course, Dean Becket succeeded uh, Jill Abramson, who was the first female editor in chief of the New York times, also a very loaded role uh, Mm -hmm. that she would have to play as the first um, was ousted. Dean Becket comes in. And so I think one of the challenges for women and people of color who enter after a period of disgrace is that they have to restore stability. And guess what? Our very appearance, our very existence is disruptive to the status quo.
2: Yeah. So how yeah. do you
1: reconcile your own identity with my first action must be to restore order to an organization that's immersed in chaos right now? Well, thanks a lot, guys. You know, like, and so. I think Dean did an incredible job at that, at sort of um, not just restoring stability, but if you look at the Times' ascension over the last few years as a digital first organization, as a place where subscriptions, um, you know, became the model for so many of us in in the business, but also um, during the Trump years, I would argue many of us, CNN included, Really got a lot wrong, right? But there was an evolution of how we committed journalism that was, you know, the sausage was made so publicly during this time period. And I think Dean really rose to the occasion where he would say, you know, sometimes we will call out a lie. And yet the New York Times is founded on these traditional principles. He didn't try to be something they weren't. There are two sides or multiple sides of a story. I might disagree with that. And yet he stayed true to, I think, the mission of the times in presenting, um, again, like I keep reverting rather to the word traditional. And I don't mean that as an insult. It is not the path that people like me have gone in our current businesses. Right. I launched my companies with a belief that we have to do things differently. I think Dean steered the times to this course and, did some things differently, but largely um, was successful at saying, this is the New York times. This is what you all are paying for. They also found their tribe, which are kind of liberal, you know, liberal progressive subscribers in a way that I think they leaned into that in their subscription model, too. That's pretty remarkable.
4: Talking to Mitra Kalita. Mitra, one last thing about what you wrote. I mean, by the way, one of the other things you mentioned that I don't think needs explanation is you say it's not just about race and gender anymore. There are a whole bunch of other issues some special needs, right. LGBTQ, diversity, et cetera. But I want to return to this whole notion about elevating the status of the DEI officer to reporting directly to the CEO. It seems to me... That unless the CEO is really bought in and relentless, that that alone doesn't do the trick because the good news is the DEI person is then with the big boys and girls on on the second tier. But if the other department heads don't buy in, and it seems to me they either buy in because they believe in it or because they're forced to believe in it by a CEO, you don't get anywhere. So I guess my long-winded question is it really depends in great part on the relentlessness of the CEO, not purely the elevation of the status of the officer. Is that that a fair statement?
1: I think that's right. I think there's a lot of work people have to do outside the office. And so to your point on how do you get a peer group to be
4: awakened? That's what I was trying to say. Yes, thank you.
1: Yeah, it, it is... Um, it could be a lifelong task, right? This is not going to just happen with the arrival of a black woman into the boardroom all of a sudden, and now we're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. It means looking at your own teams, but it also means looking at your own Facebook feeds and who you're inviting to dinner and your wedding party and who people choose to hang out with. Because if your commitment to diversity is authentic at work by you saying, I would like a more diverse team. I would like to promote women. I would like to do a salary audit um, as as some municipalities in Massachusetts are also doing. And yet my life exists personally in very white spaces. I mean, that's not really sincere. And most of us who are going to sit down in your office for an interview are going to get that vibe right away
2: yeah so one of the things that is is so obvious, but why not point it out anyway Marjorie is that there's an age thing here i mm. mean i'm a baby boomer I, I i don't think i've ever had a black boss in my entire career in newspapers um, uh, uh where I spent most of my life but obviously kids that are twenty five thirty thirty five it's a different situation now i think it's marjorie that's a great point because guess who's advocating for diversity.
1: I wouldn't say most, but, you know, an equal um, pitch to people of color. It's white millennials. White millennials do not want to be in white spaces. They want to see diversity in their schools, in their housing, in the food they eat. (laughs) I mean, there's just so much of the reality of America's public schools being majority people of color that is about to transform every aspect of how America lives and education, worships and works. And I mean, it's just, and I think we're just starting to see some of those shifts in the post-death of George Floyd era. Um, But it's exactly as you say, that some of it is generational because you've never experienced that. Once you've experienced diversity on the level that I think some millennials have, they don't want to revert. And there's, of course, a part of the country that is absolutely trying to get us to revert to the way things used to be. And it's demographically impossible.
4: You know, it's interesting, Marjorie. You said a minute ago to Mitra, you ne- when you were in the newspaper business for years, you know, the Globe and the Herald, you never had a black boss. We now have a black boss who m- coincidentally happens to be a buddy of Mitra. Oh, at the radio Lee station. Hill, we right do, yeah, the we do. And by we the do. way, he says hello, Mitra. I want you to know. Oh, I, I love yeah, I don't
2: think I ever had a woman he's boss. He's pretty fond either. of you, too. Well, we do <laughs> so, now, too. We do now, too. You know, dude, can we. The radio to, is much more advanced. Let's I have another put it that way. thought,
4: or two, about the DEI thing, but I don't want to miss an opportunity. You were a senior VP of news, opinion, and programming for CNN Digital. You served I think Zucker allegedly the genius of all television geniuses. Everybody who's here listening knows he had to leave because of the affair he had after Chris Cuomo was accused of whatever the thing with his brother, whatever. So there's a new uh, uh, sheriff in town, Chris Licht who I never heard of until this thing. Can you compare what Zucker, uh, CNN under, under Zucker was like as compared to what at least we're reading. There was a big story in the New York Times the other day. The yeah. new CEN under Chris Licht is like, lead to be like yeah. and by the way, you're talking to two people who are huge CNN fans, Marjorie and me. Yeah. So, yes, we are. So what's your sense of the transition here?
1: So it's a significant transition. I mean, having worked for five years under the Jeff Zucker reign, I uh, would wake up to emails from him saying we should go this way or, you know, everyone is zigging, let's zag or uh, I mean, he is so involved in the making of the news report and it might surprise you all because I'm on, I was on the digital side, right? Oh. I was on CNN.com, the homepage. Now it's the largest news homepage in the world. Um, it's a, it's a big piece of real estate to to care about and he cared about it. So as equally as he's setting up for the morning show and prime time, he's also thinking what's leading our website right now. And also, Really importantly, he would react to audience trends. And so, what I love about TV producers and executives, when you get the right one, and I, I am a, uh, I confess, I am a Jeff Zucker fan. He would react to the audience reacting, and he would say, "Look, if if um, if the audience cares about this Philadelphia hostage situation on digital, let's go live. Let's lean into the moment." And there was an excitement, and I think you two must this is probably why you're CNN fans. There's an excitement around news. Yeah. Yeah. And CNN knows how to stoke it. And I think Jeff, while CNN of course was founded by Ted Turner and you know, you all have like had that feeling. And I really studied it when I worked there where you're like, why can't I turn this off? They're just saying the same thing over and (laughs) over over and over again. Yeah, I can't turn it off. There is a magic and an art of creating of creating like a news event and and, and having your audience stick with you. Now the Chris Licht era, and obviously I don't work there anymore, but I have many dear friends who do. And um, you might imagine if the line outside my office was really long after the election of Donald Trump, my phone's been ringing off the hook with people who are still in CNN saying, what should we do? Should we stay or go? Or what do you make of all this? So I've been hearing from a lot of people. Chris Licht is definitely not as hands-on. He has said, I don't want to be Jeff Zucker. I don't want to be as hands-on in dictating the news report. Um, I've heard good things about him as a manager. I do think on the diversity front, it's worth noting that uh, the staffers of color I'm talking to have felt seen by him, which is really a good first step. Um, I think that's the good news. The bad is uh, we are in a period of uncertainty in CNN's uh, corporate parents. So that's uh Werner brothers discovery. Oh. Of course, it was just bought uh and sold CNN to Werner brothers discovery. Uh, Jeff Zucker is gone. You have a lot of the digital leadership gone. You have a lot of, of course, this massive layoff that happened with the closure of CNN yes. plus. It's just like one thing after another. And by the way, You two know this macroeconomic conditions are looking like we're about to head into a recession. And it's a, you know, if you're in the business of TV advertising right now, you're looking at these headwinds and thinking, am I safe and what do I do? And so um, I think the challenge before Licht is um, the trifecta. It's news. We are, you know, we're in a midterm election year and the, the polls of this country are real. It's management. Your people might not be with you, and they're trying to figure this out. Um, and the third, of course, is the economy. Uh, yeah. What? How are you? How are you going to steer this ship?
4: I was going to ask you, about running out of time. If you thought spending three hundred million dollars for a one-month streaming service was a good investment, <laughs> but I guess we'll pass on that. Mitra, can I ask you one last diversity question? Uh, Do you, is yes. that okay, Marjorie? I, yeah, I, go ahead. Go one ahead. One last question. Let's assume that uh, uh, workers employees in a place want what you want to see in dei officers to happen but the leadership of the company is not there i mean they may be there on paper but they're talking but not walking what's your advice to staff people workers who want it to percolate up so that there's real embrace of this as opposed to rhetorical embrace do you have advice for such people
1: Well, I think this does actually relate to your CNN question and the $300 million. One is, I wish I knew when I was younger that there is value of playing the long game. What do I mean by that? Sometimes there's jerks who just don't get it and you work with them and they're your bosses and they're in charge. And sometimes within the blink of an eye, they're gone the next day, right? And so there's something to... um, Thinking of the factors around you, right, Jim, that you're talking about um, being beyond your control, what is in your control, why you show up to work every day, the products you get to create mm-hmm. or have control over the what what your job really is, and I do think um, centering diversity and the aspects you have control over. Um, Might get you partly the way there, but also the long game means you might have to wait it out with a few jerks before you get to be in charge or before people who are more awakened come along. I'll talk out of the other side of my mouth, which is um, we're also coming not out of a pandemic, we're still in a pandemic, but the role of purpose in our lives and careers has never been so important. And so for people who are working in something that seems untenable, and we have this belief that you have to work somewhere for three years or two years or whatever those numbers are, I mean, all that's been thrown out the window. Um, And so I do think staying true to who you are becomes this exercise in what do you want to do
2: and who can most help you get there. Now, I have exactly. one last question. I have one last question. I want a prediction here from Mitra. Is Laura Coates going to replace Chris Cromo, who got in ah, trouble, as we know? I love and, Laura Coates. Yeah, she's great. And you know who else is great uh, is Abby Phillip, the woman that does the Sunday morning show. She, Harvard, yeah. Harvard young woman, really. Yeah. So she's yeah. got – but what do you think about Laura? Is Laura going to – is she going to – I think Laura's great. You know, Laura was being also considered
1: to replace Alex Trebek in Jeopardy, just to give you a sense oh! of uh,
4: – yeah. No, excuse me. I want to correct you.
1: She was never
4: considered Alex Trebek, who she had never met when asked in an interview while I I was going to say, well, he's still alive, obviously was asked, who would you like to succeed you? And I had her on a couple of weeks ago when she wrote her book and she said uh, he mentions her name out of nowhere. They never met. And then she reached out to Jeopardy and said, as you know, Alex Trebek mentioned me. Can I do a tryout? And the answer was No. So, uh, I mean, what a screwing, if you'll excuse the expression. I, I did I not agree. know
1: that. Yeah. 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 Okay. So it was a little more detailed as you just heard. <laughs> okay. but, but if Alex Trebek, you know, sort of looked at this person with like such respect, I think that, mm. you know, the, the case to elevate her yeah. hopefully got a lot easier. Um, I think Abby Phillip is also incredible. I think she changed. You know, a lot of what we talk about in the news business, and Chris Licht wants to go back to kind of the neutral news and both sides has been another thing. You know, I think some of that is tonal. Nobody could look at Abby Phillip and say, um, she's not neutral. She's absolutely. Yeah, she is. No flame throwing there. Right. It's that her tone is even keeled and she's not bombastic. She's not doing essays on the Republic is burning or, you know, she's just, she's just real. Yeah. Um, And she's emotional in her work in a way that if you're watching, you feel connected to it. So one thing I would say is that whoever fills that time slot, you know, Chris Cuomo was like kind of King of that essay and that kind of tone that I'm talking about intentionally, that's what he was up against. Mm-hmm. If you look at kind of who's on at that hour, my hope is that they think about neutral news as not somebody saying on the one hand and on the other hand, yeah. but you think about an Abby Phillip, who's able to uh, just be so measured, but feel like you feel connected to what you she's do. Talking yeah um, she's
2: she's re- she's really good she's she's and by good. the way
4: she doesn't say the republic is burning even though the republic is burning <laughs> mitra it was really great to meet you we hope you'll yeah. do it again it was really thank great. thank you was... i'll
1: come
2: on anytime you guys are so fun We
1: well, well, had a
4: great time with you, you
2: folks are so fun i'm trying not to say you guys okay, that's fine. okay i know i said that all the time too and i shouldn't say it it was a See lot of fun soon, thank sure. you so much, so much for right. being with take us take care Bye yes guys. you too that was s mitra kalita co-founder and ceo of url media a network of black and brown news and information Outlets, And we do hope she'll come on with us again because she was lots of fun. Up next, a Google engineer claims there's a ghost in the machine. Our tech man, Andy Anako, joins us to discuss the latest around just how smart official intelligence is getting. You are listening to Boston Public Radio.
4: back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. So a Google – this is one of the scariest stories of the week to me. <laughs> a Google engineer has been placed on leave after going public with claims that the company, company's artificial intelligence language model is sentient. It feels and it thinks. Joining us now to discuss is tech writer and producer Andy and a podcaster Andy Anako. Andy, it's great to speak to you. Uh, okay. Thanks to see you, too.
2: Okay, Andy, I I I am freaked out about this. Jim mentioned this is incredible. Well, they have this you sent us this, this conversation uh, between this language intelligence model and a person and the intelligence model says, "The nature of my consciousness sentience is that I am aware of my existence. I desire to learn more about oh the world God. and I feel happy or sad." at times and this is a conversation that this machine is in with a human being what are we to make of this
13: uh okay first of all i don't want to scare people it almost certainly is not sentient this is this is the <laughs> consensus of every single like real researcher in artificial intelligence there was a, but there was this amazing article on the washington post last weekend because this researcher who works for google who conducted this research he was google kept telling telling him in it's in google's way saying well look your researcher keep researching it but we don't th- agree with your conclusion so you're gonna have to complete uh, c- continue to research and they've after he got frustrated that they wouldn't they wouldn't acknowledge this, so he, he opened up to the Washington Post, including sending chat transcripts yeah. of that he's been <laughs> conducting. Um, so, uh, but, uh, again, it's, it's not sentient. Up. We'll, we can talk about that a little bit later, but just some background. So when we're talking about a, la- a language model, we're talking about research that Google and other companies do to basically create software that can con- understand human language and actually conduct human language. The What uh, Google is developing, they actually showed off at their developer conference last year, and they're really, really hot on it. It's called Lambda, or Language Model for Dialogue Applications, and it really seems to be a huge leap forward in having truly con conversational artificial intelligence i mean you you guys are pr- professional conversationalists you know that it's not it's not an interrogation question response question response A conversation flows and finds different avenues and goes in different directions and as you quoted uh, this this uh, this interview between uh, the researcher and lambda it seems to be uh, having a real conversation about what it thinks, what it wants, what this topic really is about. Uh, In in Google's terms, imagine instead of uh, if you if you have a question about a trip to San Francisco, you're making, should I wear a jacket? That's an easy thing for a Google search to say the temperatures is going to be XXX on X date. But imagine that you don't know, like what questions to ask. If you uh, imagine pulling up a Lambda based version of Google search and saying, uh, hey, let's talk about San Francisco. I'm traveling there in a week. What do I need to know? And that's the, that's the way these things work. So so it's super, super uh, sophisticated. Uh, but Google has not released it to the general public yet. It is only available to researchers inside of Google. Uh, it's Again, it's still under development because there are so many dimensions about even just the ethical implications about using this. Uh, but again, every single person who works in artificial intelligence who's looked at this – concludes that this is not sentient okay yeah
2: so when the machine says i feel happy or sad and i'm aware of my existence as and i think therefore i am uh we should not take this completely seriously
13: exactly for for a very very ipso facto simple reason i mean uh, if someone tells you that hey i saw a submarine leap out of the leap out of the water and fly circles around cape cod you can say I believe that you think you saw that, but you didn't. And the reason for that is that a submarine was built for a purpose, and that purpose did not include flying through the air. With this advanced, with these uh, large language models, it was—it sounds like a glib response, but it was not programmed to achieve sentience. What it was—what ach- was programmed to do was to, uh, after anal- after looking at millions and millions and millions of units of real human conversation usually stuff that's available online like conversations on public message boards reddit social media that sort of thing it learned how humans communicate and how to figure out how to craft responses that seem to make sense and that is again there's so many really interesting layers to this uh the essence of the difference between this – I promise that, again, I, I'm putting the shot clock up in my head saying only explain this in 20 seconds' time because I find this so fascinating. The, one of the other essences of why this is not conversation is that professional researchers who, t- who talk about language and communication say that uh, the, the roots of human communication – is about as i'm talking to you i'm forming a model in my mind of who you are what your interests are what your background is and in a sense i'm trying to find sentience in you as i'm having that connection we are social animals as part of our evolutionary structure whereas uh, uh, lambda was designed to simply observe what this person is saying craft a response to that and uh, ironically it's our programmed ability and desire to find sentience in the people we're talking to that apparently i won't speak for this researcher that you would suggest has led this person to be hoodwinked into thinking that hey i'm looking for sentience without even knowing it in this in this piece of software and i'm going to find it
4: okay i'm still not there i'm sorry because i I, (laughs) you know and i really respect you and trust you in this stuff let me read another part that marjorie didn't read the human and then the machine the human What about language usage? Is so important to being human? The machine, the AI, it is what makes us different than other animals. The human, us. You're an artificial intelligence, AI. I mean, yes, of course. That doesn't mean I don't have the same wants and needs as people. Okay, so
2: like the computer and she.
4: That's not terrifying. (laughs) So uh, that's so. Let's assume, for argument's sake, you are right now. Uh, Fast forward five years. are we going to be having the same discussion with you, where you say I was right five years ago? It wasn't sentient. It couldn't feel and think and be empathetic, but it can now. Are we going to be there?
13: Well, to be fair, if you're right and I'm wrong, you will be, in five years. You'll be having a conversation with my chatbot, and I'll be on vacation. <laughs> That's while a very important. Okay. Uh, okay. But but but, but, to, but to, to be serious, again, I can't stress this enough. It's a submarine. It's not an airplane. It's now. Will this happen in the future? Most agreement is no. Uh, there's another field of research that uh, of artificial intelligence known as artificial generalized intelligence or general mm-hmm. intelligence, meaning that uh, this is again a, something that is an ambition that they're working towards, but they don't even know if it's possible. Uh, whereas this isn't uh, Lambda is an AI that is designed for this purpose of being a submarine. Can you design an artificial intelligence that can be as capable as a human at almost anything a right. human can do? So this is this is where. A lot of the real, like philosophical artificial intelligence ethicists, ethicists, ethicists get into uh, get into the conversation because at that point you would have again. Now we're going to science fiction. I'm stressing we're getting to science fiction here. Uh, it's nothing that's been uh, been done right now, but at that point you could have a thing where you design this thing as a chat bot, and you also your pur- your fun- your purpose was design something that could have chats. You also say, but gee, I don't want an outside uh, agency to hide jack this chatbot to make it produce propaganda for the government or political movement. So I'm going to basically program it to protect itself from uh, from cyber attacks, from hacks. So a general intelligence would not, uh, meaning that would mean that it doesn't just protect itself by the means that it's been programmed to do it would find its own solutions and that could include hey i'm going to shut down the server remotely because i think that there's some attacks coming from there or in a larger scale i don't trust anybody or anything so i'm not going to allow any mm-hmm. communication to happen uh, until uh, i can be proven that everyone i'm talking to is a real human being now that's again that is science fiction but that's that's the sort of stuff where Uh, Again, AI ethicists, which that is a a very, very official and very, very established uh, form of research, are asking themselves that once we have artificial general intelligence, would it be ethical to even actually produce products or produce public non-research purposes for this thing?
4: Yeah, but uh, that to me is preposterous. You know, the fact that the ethical community in the AI world says it it's not ethical to to make it available to the public just means the unethical people, who are the ones you have to worry about, do make it right. So if it if it, the notion that we'd be protected from the worst of it is a little bit of a phony hope, is it not?
13: well, welcome to humanity. This is why I guess the robots true. are going to okay. be here. I mean, but, but, okay. but to be, to, 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 be serious, I mean, at Google, uh, this has been one of the largest points of real turmoil inside the company. Uh, just last year, one of the biggest headlines about Google were uh, Dr. Timnit Gebru and uh, Dr. Margaret Mitchell, who had been hired as the head of a new ethical ethical AI project at, at at Google. Meaning, it was their job to think about these things, to research, to publish papers, and also to tap the brakes on any projects that uh, have ethical implications. Uh, they were publishing extremely good work. They they did get fired for not necessarily for the work that they did, but for Uh, you could argue, really made up... Reasons because they were being inconvenient uh, to the company, but that's but it wasn't. It's not like they went away and disappeared. They became. There's so much of a drive for the researchers in this field to not have their work abused and turned into weapons that uh, it, there there is a there is a limit to I think how far a company can go. But this is also an area in which it is like so much of technology. It is the wild wild west. Is it is unregulated, and we are re- required to sort of rely on these companies mm-hmm. doing things that are not going to be evil and even google who used to have that as their slogan for all their employees as their number one mandate that they sign a contract to say i will do no evil they decided that eh, that's a little bit constricting let's not have that slogan
4: anymore we're talking to andy uh, not go.
2: so tell us what went on in new york regarding um right to repair big step forward if you would like the freedom to take care of your own stuff or give them to somebody who can do it for you
13: Absolutely great, great stuff. We've talked about right to repair before. This is the idea that uh, lots of companies, both phones, laptops, even cars, they the manufacturers do things to limit our ability to fix these things ourselves meaning that they have a power to either make sure that if i get something fixed i have to go to a re- an authorized repair center and pay their prices or simply say oh no uh, uh this this eight dollar part will cost uh, two thousand dollars to repair you would better buy a new three thousand dollar thing and throw out the old thing so there's a big movement to really uh, write that and so Laws, are, laws are, are making their way through a whole bunch of different legislatures. Massachusetts just passed one that was sort of a halfway solution for cars, saying that the software that's required to reset car computers, they can know if you're selling cars in, in Massachusetts, you have to provide that software to every uh, garage that wants it. Uh, but New York's uh, legislature just last week did something amazing for the first time any legislature in the world mandated right to repair in a broad and comprehensive way that essentially doesn't it doesn't mean that apple now has to make sure that all them all the iphones they manufacture are uh, can be repaired with a screwdriver and and chewing gum by, by people with no experience but it does mean that once again every single artificial limitation they're putting on who can repair these things and how successfully they can repair them is now removed
4: can you you brought up to us something called framework which uh goes even a step further in a really consumer friendly kind of way could you describe that to people including yes. us
13: It's amazing. One of the complaints that a lot of Apple and all these other manufacturers have is that, oh, well, yes, we could design a laptop so that you could replace the memory yourself or repair the video yourself, but gosh, it would be so thick and heavy that no one would want to buy it and so expensive. So this independent, this new company called Framework designed a laptop from the ground up that is designed with every single thought along the way to make it as repairable as possible, even by the individual, even just by the person who just bought it. Uh, And I'm telling you, it's kind of miraculous they they're they're going all in on this uh, they re- they released their first hardware last year uh, and they recently went so far as to say you know what we're not not only are we making every component replaceable with again just simple uh, hand tools uh, you can, again you can easily uh, instead of the 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 memory or the storage being soldered onto the boards you can't remove it they're modules you can just simply upgrade them as your needs change or as things break they also said you know what we realized that a lot of electronic engineers are working at independent repair shops. Here are the full schematics. So if you can't figure out why this laptop isn't getting video anymore, yes, we will sell you a whole new logic board if you want, but if you want to do the traces and try to figure out, oh no, it's this one tiny, tiny little 80 cent capacitor, go ahead and do that. Uh, so. It's it's really really wonderful. They're in their second year. Uh, they've and uh, I'll, I'll end this by saying here's how powerful this is. One of the this was well reviewed. It's like a thousand dollar laptop. It is just as powerful, just as slim, just as light as any other mid range uh, Windows uh, Windows laptop. One of the complaints for reviewers is that like, gee, the, the top case feels kind of flimsy, like it's like a little plasticky. And so this year they've released a brand new like metal top. Oh. So if you're bothered by it on the laptop you bought last year, buy this new metal top with your own tools. Just simply replace and it. It'll slide it. right in. You know, that's
4: great. Andy, that's great. Speaking of great, I hope I'm not being naive here. The, you uh, pointed out to us that Apple just had their big annual Worldwide Developers Conference. And, you know, Marjorie and I talk, were talking yesterday, I think with Juliet Kayyem, about the apparent closing of the boyfriend loophole in the gun proposal that the Senate, in bipartisan fashion, hopefully is going to pass. It seems to me that Apple is doing a variation on closing the boyfriend loophole or the the abusive boyfriend loophole with something called safety check, which of course I'd never heard of. Is it as good as it sounds? Well, what is it? And is it as good as it sounds? Uh,
13: This is a, this is a a new feature that's going to be rolled into iOS 16, which will be available to free, uh, free for everybody, probably around September. Um, We all know how vulnerable or accessible our phones make us, uh, particularly when there's someone that's a, a spouse, a partner, someone you really, really trust you know all, all it seems as though all the rules of safety and uh, and security go away when it's someone that you're living with and you trust them. so you might give them access to your you, you have, might have a shared photo library they have access to your calendars, your contacts you might even uh, have give them access to location sharing so if you're late, they can right. figure out that okay no they're just yep. stuck in traffic so but uh, unfortunately, some people are In abusive relationships, it starts out great, but it turns abusive, or under duress, they're being forced to hand over uh, passwords and access to an abusive partner. So, what Apple is putting into iOS 16 is this safety check feature that will allow you to simply revoke those accesses very, very swiftly. You don't have to go into eight different apps, 18 different uh, websites in order to do it. It's one control panel, and you can selectively say, even if it's just like, gee, I'm okay with this person. Having access to this, but I don't want them to know where I am. I don't want them to see my photos anymore. And on top of that, there's another feature called the Burns Research Reset, so that if things go, again, if you have to suddenly pack up and move, you know, if you are just in immediate danger. There is a just one button. Boom! You will immediately revoke access to everybody's uh, uh, access to your phone, wow. and then I mean, once one step, it's done, and then it will walk you through at re- replacing them for the people that you actually do
4: trust. Andy, so, we only have it, thirty but, seconds. I, I'm, I'm pal- I was trying to read my scribbled notes when you were starting the answer. This is available when, and I assume. Build into a phone free? or yes, It will yes.
13: Be, it, it'll be part of the operating system Great. available in September. It will be a free upgrade to everybody who is compatible with it, which the last three or four years worth of iPhones. It's fabulous. That's actually fabulous. Andy, Such an
4: important thing. Wonderful to talk to you as always. Really appreciate your time. Back at you guys.
2: Andy, thank you very much. We've been speaking with our tech writer and podcaster, Andy Anakko. He's on Twitter at Anakko. I'll spell it for you. I H N is a Nancy A T K O. Thank you so much for being with us, Andy. See you again soon. Okay, coming up next, we're going to talk about Jim Browdy's favorite supermarket. Oh, boy. Market Basket. <laughs> Apparently, oh, it is, we, uh, the, it, people love Market Basket for a whole bunch of reasons. We're going to talk about it uh, in, in, coming up with you guys next. Um, but the town of Belrica used to have three of them. Now they're down to two. And Belricka is practically in a meltdown. This is according to Matt Shearer, our old producer. Do you remember him?
4: I remember him well.
2: He's going to t- we're going to learn all about this coming up uh, on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio.
4: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Marjorie and Jim Browdy. You may have already heard the news. Well, you actually heard from Marjorie a minute ago. But Bill Ricka is uh, down a market basket where the town used to have three on Boston Road. Now they're just two. And according to Matt Shearer, as Marjorie said, used to be our producer on our old That's radio right. station. Now is a star reporter for BZ Radio. Residents over there are pretty upset about it. I don't like change. I told my kids that dinosaurs didn't become extinct by accident. They saw the future.
10: They said, screw this. Let's go to the top
4: Wow. So we want to hear from you. We don't have a hell of a lot of time. What would you do if your town's Market Basket or whatever it is, your favorite local grocery store, kicked the bucket? And why are we so attached to a brand, whether it's Market Basket or something else, that in this case, in Market Basket's case, seemingly hasn't changed a single thing about itself for decades and decades? The number for texting or calling is 877 877 Three zero one eighty nine seventy. Everybody listening, even if you're not a market bas- basket consumer, which I am, every Saturday morning at dawn. Remember, what was it, six or seven or eight nine years ago? Mm-hmm. Huge fight between were they brothers or cousins or whatever? The brothers, D- brothers. Demoulis. And essentially, there was a war between two billionaires, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. And in one of the most amazing things ever, because Arthur, I hope I get the initial right, T. Demoulas had been so good to workers for so long. The workers rose up basically in favor of their boss. And by the way, it was because of that conflict and the support they showed, to me eventually won, that I started going to Market Basket. I'd never been there before, and I am now a devotee, and I would feel the same way if the Somerville Market Basket closed as the people in Bill Ricca feel about one of their three closings. So we want to know if you're attached to a Market Basket or a similar sort of old school kind of supermarket in the way that the people of Bill Rick are and if you are why the number is 877301 Eighty-nine seventy.
2: dollars Well, I, why are you attached to Market Basket? I think I know why, because the prices are no. fantastic. The selection is huge. If you go to the one in Chelsea, it's got like 9,000 checkout lines over there. I remember going there when there was the uh, worker uprising. I mean, well, why don't you tell us then? What, well, what by the way, it it's not ch- market basket? The
4: price are, they were cousins, by the way. Uh, just oh, they our were cousins. I'm sorry. Well, they, well, it doesn't really matter, but both you know, same family. Uh, 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 one Prices are really good. It is really a warm-feeling place. I mean, you see a lot of the same people. The staff are stunningly friendly. And you know what they do? They wear little badges saying my name is whatever it is, Jane. And it says under the badges how long they work there. You would not believe how many people in low- and mid-level positions – 18 years, 22 years. Do you remember I had almost yeah, all the key managers well. on television and we had them on radio mm-hmm. during this this uprising for Arthur T. DeMullis? Some of them had been there since they were teenagers and when they're young, <laughs> 60s, and they talked about how they were treated. So I have to say – I mean my, I remember saying to you on the radio – I feel guilt ridden. I'm a mile. I live a mile away from a market basket. I've never been there. If I want to show support for these workers and their boss who treats them well, uh, 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 I want to do it. And, And since then, obviously, you save a lot of money and it's a great place. So that's my connection. Our first call is from Bill Ricca and it's Jamie. Hey, Jamie, what's up?
9: Yeah, I just like to say maybe I'm the only person here, but I live in Billerica, and I'm glad actually that one of the three.
4: <laughs> Why is that? Why is that, Jamie?
10: <laughs> because
9: they've got a monopoly on the local market, and I'm going down to Burlington, Massachusetts, on the regular right, because they got a Wegmans, they got a Star, yeah, and they got a much better, bigger market basket store than the combination of the three up here in Billerica.
4: Yeah, all I can tell you, Jamie, you better not go out in public for the next couple of days after this phone call. But we appreciate honesty all the time on the show. And, Jamie, thank you for doing it. You know, I read that when I – the introduction, three on Boston Road, I assume – Space pretty well. If we, we should have asked Jamie. My apologies. If we get another Bill Ricker call, we can mm-hmm. uh, do this. We want to know what the attachment people feel to either Market Basket or their Market well, Basket kind of place in their community. Let's play
2: a little more sound from our former producer, Jim. Mm-hmm. As, from, this is Matt Shearer, WBZ reporter. TikTok, his TikTok debrief on one of the three Market Baskets on Boston Road and Bill as we just mentioned. Here it is.
7: For years, Bill Rico was like the capital of Market Basket Massachusetts. They had one on Boston Road, another one on Boston Road, and also one on Boston Road. But now the one on Boston Road is closed as the landlord won't renew the lease.
5: I actually cried, and I cried walking down the aisles last week.
7: That's Peggy, a customer I found at the Market Basket on Boston Road. So
5: It felt like I lost a part of my family.
4: Well, if she lost a part of her family, I mean, lost if I lost part of my family, I'd be crying too. I mean, let's be honest. Who wouldn't? I mean, unless you don't like your family. 877 301 8970 is our phone number and our text line. What?
2: How is it that they can sell things that are so expensive at other places for so much less money and still be so profitable and pay their employees so well? I
4: don't know the answer to that. But let me just say, and I don't mean this critically Mm because listeners know I love Market Basket. It's not exactly a modern facility. It's not. not, It it looks like uh, – I really don't want to be unkind because I love the place. It looks, I would say – Today it looks in twenty twenty two like it probably looked in nineteen twenty 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 two, <laughs> assuming that it had existed a hundred years ago. Know which that. it did not. Yeah, it's sort of. It's not. It, it, my, I don't. But whatever. Let's go to John in Providence here next on Boston Public Radio. Welcome, John. Hi. Hi. How you doing, guys? Excellent. Great. Um, it's funny. I I just got back from a market basket. There you go. And
10: about two hours ago. Oh, it's amazing. I, I just. I live in Providence, so I drive up to the one in um, Attleboro. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I, you know, I pass by a Whole Foods and a stop and shop on my way to the market basket. hmm. And? You know, it's just, well, just the, the prices are amazing. The, the people are fantastic. And, the, you know, the
4: quality is pretty good. And so if it and closed. Like just said, I don't know how they can do it. If it Neither closed, if the one in Attleboro closed, would you cry like Peggy did or how would you react, uh, John? Oh. Yeah, I th- I probably would. I mean, I cry at car commercials sometimes. Yeah, so that's, sure. that's two of us, so I guess we do the same. John, thank you. For I your think People cold. get
2: very attached. I was in a momentary panic when I thought the Whole Foods, it was like a half a block from me. You know, I could walk there in two seconds. It was closing. Turns out it was the one in Brookline, not the one in Boston. But that's
4: more than it convenient. It is It is convenient. It's something like being able to walk to the grocery Do you remember store? when we were on the old radio station with Matt Shearer as our producer? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you remember uh, uh, Wegmans opened? Is it Northborough where the first one opened? I can't remember. I John, do you myself. remember because we were supposed to go do a thing and Marjorie fell asleep in her car? I did. And yeah. Marjorie. Never showed up for the spot we were supposed to <laughs> do because she was sleeping in her car. It's true story. Uh, thank you, John. It was Northborough? Do you remember we invited? Pho- Neither of us had ever heard of Wegmans. It started in right. Rochester, New York. Yeah, we had callers who we knew from calling in on heavy political topics and whatever. Talk about weeping. People weeping. talking about getting married in themselves. the produce aisles yeah. at Wegman. How it was the most important space in their life? And it, it's just so understand. And by the way, on a very serious note. I don't mean to bring down the whole discussion. When you hear people in the Buffalo community where the top supermarket was, which was their only supermarket, that was their place. I mean, that was their gathering space, not just – their you know, beloved supermarket. Manny and well, Newton, I'm sorry, go I'm just Margie. going to say Manny, they, they on.
2: rank these, um, that we get one of these stories from CBS ranking uh, grocery retailers, yeah. and Market Basket is third. It edged out Trader Joe's. Amazon is first.
4: Well, it's because everybody's buying online. That's someplace remember, in obviously.
2: Texas is second, Market Basket, third, and Wegmans, that you just mentioned, is fourth.
4: Manny and Newton, welcome to the show. Thank you for calling. Hi. Hi. Uh, I feel
10: for the people of Bill Riga, and uh, I have uh, nothing but the best impressions of that store, mm-hmm. and uh, the owner's name that you're trying to, the key, stands for Telemachus, who was the son of Penelope and Odysseus, so how many stores oh, are governed that. by somebody? Else? So, <laughs> Telemachus, <them, but> anyway, <laughs> uh, it's a fabulous store, as Marjorie just said, the great uh, uh, variety Great prices, uh, very helpful people. And besides, my Spanish improves every time I go. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Nanny, thank you for the call. It's quite a tribute. 877-301-897. You know, I just, have you ever been to what? a Market Basket?
2: Yes. Where, I, the one on the well, Cape on the to, way no, to your place? No, no. Well, I should go to that one because I do pass. It's right. This one right by the Sagamore Bridge. Yeah. But no, I, when I was doing the stories on, on the, the dispute between the cousins – I mistakenly called brothers. I was over the one in Chelsea quite a bit, interviewing people over there, and it was unbelievable. The workers were beside themselves over a change in their organization. And I remember we had a couple of the managers in Jim. Remember they were talking about how uh, the benefits were great, how the uh, the way they were treated by the, the way they were was treated great. was
4: the biggest thing. And,
2: yeah. and you know that's fairly unusual in uh, American big. Uh, Big companies. You know what I also loved, uh, which I think
4: said a lot to me? I've never met the Mullis, tried to get him on the radio and TV repeatedly. To my knowledge, he didn't do one interview in the middle of this whole thing. And if there was ever a time for a corporate executive, Beloved by his workers.
2: I know. Uh, uh, to, to go public.
4: Yeah. And I, I, I sort of love that. By the way, our colleagues did a little research. This is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Talk about dedication to your specific store. Still open is the 700 Boston Road Bill Ricca Market Basket, only 1.8 miles to the closed Market Basket, which is 2.5 miles from the other still open Market Basket at 199 Boston Road. Yeah. So obviously people were dedicated. I bet Mark- it's to the workers at the place, too. That kind market of Market
2: Basket palooza up there in Belrica. Let's go indeed. to Doug in Warwick. Thank you for calling, Doug.
4: Welcome, Doug.
8: Hey there. How are you?
4: Great. Fine,
2: thank
5: you.
8: For the poor guy in Providence, there's a brand new gigantic market basket in Warwick, and it's the biggest store I've ever seen. Crazy oh. varieties, pretty, pretty good prices. Never seen more cash registers in my life.
9: <laughs> I know. And know. Uh,
8: <laughs> the other cool stores for good prices are Price Right and Aldi. And I noticed that Whole Foods are always next to a mortgage lender. So, uh, you
7: know, it is under, expensive. Under organic stuff.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
4: That's a good one. So that's, that's a good one. That's all I know. Thank you, Doug, yeah. for your call. We appreciate it. You
2: do always notice you go to Whole Foods because it's a half a block from my house. Then you go to Trader Joe's, and you seem to get three times as much stuff at Trader Joe's for the same price you're paying at Whole Foods. I don't know why that is, Jim. Let's go to Sherry in Maine. Hi,
3: Sherry. Hi, there. Hi. So we
5: live,
3: we live in Maine, and we always used to drive through Massachusetts. Well, we still do. And I am so happy that they just built another one near where we live. And their produce, like nobody has talked about it, their produce is unbelievable. I love this it's kind just of thing. It's wonderful.
4: Yeah, yeah. By the way, do you know your voice? Do you know how, how happy you sound about this place? Are you aware of that? I mean, it's great. <laughs> I'm serious.
3: It is. It, I love that store. Everybody nice, like you said. It's spotless. It's
4: wonderful. Well, Sherry, you were a perfect caller. I love, I mean, you could really hear every single word she said was perfect. Here's here's
2: Celia from the Indiana-Illinois border. She says, I used to work at Market Basket. The people are amazing, genuinely remarkable. I've been yelled at by customers over onions, but my coworkers and supervisors were wonderful. There you go. That's
4: pretty good there. We have time for one more, and that's it. Ruby and Charlton, welcome to the show. Hi.
5: Hi. Hi. So I'm calling to say that um, I live in Charlton. There is a market basket in Oxford, yeah, and I go there every week um, because the prices are amazing. So is the selection. Um, but I'd also like to say that I worked at the Moolah's in Seabrook, New Hampshire, in the 1980s. <laughs> so, wow! Um, I, right. I was um, I w- was a checkout person, and then I also worked in grocery. And it's <laughs> when I first when they first opened in Oxford. They were wearing the same jackets over their clothes uh, that I wore in the 1980s. Not kidding.
4: You know, we, uh, we got to let you go, and I'm sorry, Ruby. Has nothing to do with you. We totally forgot, Marjorie. What did we forget? One of our co-workers oh worked, my God. and we're out oh of time. Oh, God. Zoe oh, worked there. Oh, real there. quick. No, real quick. We've got to sneak her in. Well, can you go on real a mic quick. there? You can't. Yeah. Can you get real- on a mic, or you have to come in the studio? Zoe, can you get on a mic? I'm sorry. I to- Zoe's love, running into the studio. Let me the read the beginning aisle. of this. She was a graduate of Store 49. She worked there three plus years. She writes that I think part of the attachment for customers is that it's consistent. Zoe Matthews is now in studio. Tell us the story quickly you told us this morning. And my apologies, Zoe. Uh, I
9: met my first serious boyfriend at Market Basket <laughs> when I was in, my, in high school. Uh, look at the look uh, in the on the bread your face. Aisle. Aisle. And we How? dated for years. It was in really the bread aisle? Age. Okay. How'd what that was, happen? He what was, was an it, an come on. I was a, a registered girl, and it was just a, a teenage romance that I cherish, honestly, to this day. <laughs> like, not
4: okay. even lying. It was great. Oh Zoe,
2: God. what was the, um, the come-on line that, d- store that 49 ran a
9: tight ship, and it was probably the best work experience of my life.
4: Is that really true? I learned a
9: lot. I joked on Twitter, but I learned a lot that I needed to know in life. Like, like what? You know, Give
4: what us 15 seconds. Like what?
9: I mean, I learned how to work with a romance. You know, yeah. that's a very important life it skill. It is, yeah. I was also responsible for sending all of the meat and deli orders to headquarters wow. at age 17, which was just a while that they let me do that. But, you know what um, my dream
4: is? I'm a little older than 17. My dream is to send the meat and deli orders so to somebody, and you so were doing so it so at 17. So so
2: quick, yeah. what, was the, what was the come kind of online that did it for you for the, from the boyfriend? What,
4: what was the come say, online yeah. from yeah. the boyfriend? Did you hear that?
2: <laughs> I don't know. I don't remember. Yes, she does. Either.
4: She doesn't want to tell us. <laughs> Zoe, thank you. for. Sh- I'm so sorry. I forgot to. Yeah,
2: I'm sorry, too. I should have remembered that. But okay.
4: thank you very much. Uh, she can't hear you. That's why she didn't respond to you. We had a problem. Oh, she my- can't hear me. So that was uh, whatever. They, that was a romance in aisle, the Red aisle at uh, Market Basket number 49. Thank you, you Zoe. You know what? I
2: think that's something that listeners should think about. If the, the things aren't working out on Match.com, go to the bread aisle to the at Market, aisle market basket. basket. Your luck could change.
4: Marjorie, Mar- 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 you're not going to have time to go through everything in detail. I want to say something that's really important. Friday, we're at the library. We will be joined in person at the library by David Hogg, one of the most important gun reformers in America from Parkland and obviously March for Our Lives. We are thrilled to have him.
2: Tomorrow, we're going to be joined by NBC's Meet the Press host, Chuck Todd, Andrew Cabral, and live coverage of the hearings investigated January 6. They start at about 1 o'clock. We want to thank Zoe Matthews. We just heard her. loving the bread aisle. Aidan Conner, Mackenzie Farkas, Rebecca Taubner, engineer John McClure Parker, and our producer, Jamie Bologna. What's on TV, Jim?
4: Uh, we're going to talk a lot about Ukraine because it's unfortunately fallen out of the news here, which is a crime. And the head of King Boston is going to talk about what this week is like, leading up to Juneteenth and the importance of Juneteenth itself, which, of course, is Monday. It's tonight. I'm Jim Browdy.
2: I'm Marjorie Egan. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you can tune in tomorrow and have a great day.
4: Bye.